Welcome to the Earth Kingdom Prairie Home Companion, a bi-weekly podcast where two nerds and a newbie watch Avatar The Last Airbender and provide all their thoughts, feelings, and opinions. I'm Kelly. I'm Mike. And I'm JJ. To recap previously on Avatar The Last Airbender, Aang continued his search for an earthbending master while Zuko and Iroh went even further into exile. Nice and succinct. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we are doing three episodes today, and um, they were three pretty good episodes. I have to say, this was probably the... Out of all the runs of episodes that we've done up until this point, these three were probably my favorite as a whole, like as a collection of episodes. I think I enjoyed these three the most, although enjoyed is uh, perhaps not the correct word. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we're doing episodes five, six, and seven. So episode five is Avatar Day. And you guys are going to have to forgive me. Um, I wrote my recaps, but they are on my desk at work and not here at home with me. And so I'm just going to be kind of winging it off the top of my head instead of reading off my neat little uh, recaps. But to recap Avatar Day, uh, basically Aang, Katara, and Sokka stumble upon a celebration called Avatar Day in a city in the Earth Kingdom, and it turns out that Avatar Day is not so much a celebration of the Avatar as um, kind of a celebration about how much this village hates the Avatar due to their (laughs) long-held belief that Avatar Kiyoshi killed their leader, Chin the Great, who is so great. (laughs) (laughs) He's the best. So... Yeah. So Aang is arrested for the crime and subject to uh, this town's highly um, personal judicial system, which does not necessarily follow any uh, kind of laws that anywhere else in the world follows. It's just kind of this one guy who determines your guilt or innocence based on whatever he feels like at the time. So Sokka and Katara go into detective mode to try to find evidence to clear Aang's name, and that is very amusing. Meanwhile, uh, while Aang is on trial, Zuko is stealing um, to provide for himself and Iroh. He starts out by stealing food and begins stealing money and other things. Um, It causes a slight rift between the two of them, and Zuko takes off on his own. So that's our recap, more or less. I didn't realize, or I (laughs) guess I didn't take it as his stealing caused the rift so much as his stealing was a premeditated part of, he knew he was going to leave and he was like, I can't just leave my uncle. I have to at least set him up Mm. before I go. Yeah, I have to set him up. Oh yeah, yeah, but I don't mean caused a rift as in like the, the Zuko stealing was not the reason you know, it didn't it didn't cause this problem. It was um, definitely him setting Iroh up, trying to provide for him before he takes off on his own. Yeah. Iroh's disappointment, I mean, I felt it. I'm not Zuko, and I felt it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. There's that whole... Well, I guess we can talk about them first. Um, you know, so Zuko starts off stealing food and he steals a lot of food you know more than they can just eat in one sitting necessarily and then throughout 
the episode, we see him stealing money, kind of essentially robbing a stagecoach in that uh, kind of a way. We see him, see him steal a bunch of money. Um, he steals a teapot for Iroh, and then we have that beautiful exchange where, you know, Zuko's like, do you like your teapot? And Iroh says, well, the best cups of tea will taste delicious, whether they come from a beautiful porcelain pot or from a tin cup. You know, that's not that's not the point. We don't need these things. Um, and eventually it leads them to further have this conversation where Zuko has given up hope and Iroh is trying to convince him that hope is something that lives inside of you. You know, it, you can't turn to despair. Um, and they have a really beautiful exchange, which I quoted in my notes that I don't have with me, so I can't, <laughs> I can't recall it from uh, word for word from memory, but it's really heart-wrenching because you see Zuko just, he's so depressed and he's so heartbroken and he's just shut down. He's just put all these walls up and he's just not letting Iroh in and Iroh is trying so hard to connect with him and to show him that... Um, his self-worth is not tied to his father's expectations or his father's opinions of him and that they can have a wonderful life together away from all of that if Zuko just will will commit to that idea if he'll just let go of the idea that the only honor for him is in fulfilling his father's wishes and Zuko just can't do that right now nope Oh, Zuko. He's such a teenage boy sometimes, but it's really heartbreaking the way he does it because he has completely lost his sense of self, really. You know, for the past three years, he's defined himself by, I need to find the Avatar so I can get back in my father's good graces, and now that's kind of no longer an option at all because of Azula. So... Yeah, poor Zuko. <laughs> it's really sad. And even at the end, I mean, I of course I think it's the wrong thing. How can you split up Zuko and Iroh? That's terrible. Um, but at the same time, I understand that Zuko needs to do this. Like, he needs this time to go off on his own and figure out who he is and what his place in the world is. And he can't do that with Iroh there protecting him so I understand that it's kind of like the coming of age like everybody needs to pass this threshold into adulthood and go out on your own sort of a thing um but even at the same time you know we feel the weight of Iroh's disappointment and his concern and he calls Zuko back at the last moment and you think like oh is he going to say something or is he going to change Zuko's mind or is he going to yell at him and he just gives him the bird horse you know <laughs> to take with them. They don't even say goodbye to each other. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a lot of amazing... So in ana, in animation terms, any of the sort of emotions and, and physical physicality of the characters is referred to as acting. And this, the thing is, like, in this episode, all of them in particular, but any of the Zuko segments have fantastic acting because, as we'd said before, Zuko doesn't say much. And it's all in the way he's animated. It's all in... even. It's not even that he has a lot of facial expressions. It's just, like, his body language and the way he interacts with the environment. Although I thought the acting overall was really great in this episode. Like, in the 
Aang and Katara and Sokka segments mm-hmm. with the kind of the comedic humor. Because, well, the whole Avatar Day, I mean, we started with Zuko, but Avatar Day is kind of the A plot. Mm-hmm. Oh, the yeah. A story. Um, which, I don't know, I, I liked it. I thought it was fun. I, I actually, when on a rewatch of this show, would tend to give this episode a skip. Because I didn't really think it moved the plot forward all that much, so I tended to kind of, so I'd sort of forgotten what this one was about. And so rewatching it, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. that's what it was, and it's kind of fun. And um, I, I actually think of Avatar Day as kind of a standalone episode, more than the other two. So, but, I don't know. I laughed a yeah, lot think- at like most of the episodes this week. I mean, I these were th- this was a really good stretch. And I, to your point of, um, I guess, body acting or whatever you know term you're going to use for the animation part of it. I feel like that got stepped up in these three episodes as well, like noticeably. I agree. Um, there, there I was. Agree. Um, I think maybe it's in the next one, but there's like one of those moments where Katara does like the "I'm watching you" with the two fingers and the eyes. Mm-hmm. Kind of, it's like a proto version of. What a yeah. Drive. I mean, we're bouncing around, but yeah. I mean, <laughs> I know. The, that's the, next one. That's next. Little one. moments like that, I was like, oh wow, they're like the animation is like evolving noticeably. And mm-hmm. these three episodes, it was, like, on display really, like, in a really lovely way. Yeah, it's really great. I liked this episode a lot. I did think it was really funny. I know a lot of times with the kind of singular comedic episodes, I'm not really into those as much. Uh, for whatever reason, either the humor is just not my brand of humor, or I'm impatient to get on with the larger story arc, or, you know, whatever. But I know that a lot of times those um, sort of standalone comedic episodes have missed for me. But I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was really funny. Um, I... You know, one of the things that this episode did really beautifully, that I think the show does well as a whole, but I noticed it particularly in this episode, is for such a small runtime, we've talked again about how these are really short episodes, 24, 25 minutes. They are so economical in the information that they present, and I felt like this was an episode where everything had meaning. There was nothing that was throwaway. Everything came back around. We open with, you know, them arriving and it's Avatar Day and whatever and... We actually open on Momo stuffing his fist in Sokka's mouth. Well, yes. To get a spider web. That's hilarious. Which, I don't know how long Sokka had his mouth open, but it was long enough for a spider to build its web. Yeah, that my was amazing. My favorite line, well, one of my favorites, because there's a lot of them in this episode, it was like, Momo, you need to be a little more sensitive to, to my, my boundaries. <laughs> I thought that was amazing. Sokka in this entire episode, and in this run of episodes, was amazing. <laughs> yeah. That is where we officially, officially open. But for the structural stuff that I'm talking about, when we get to Avatar Day, Sokka has a line about, oh, the best thing about these fairs are fried foods. And it's not a throwaway because we come back around later to the end of the episode and we have the unfried <laughs> Avatar dough, dough to yeah. show how he was not boiled in oil. And then <laughs> um, we have that come back 
several times. I have, oh, I wish I had my notes because I had all these examples. That one was one of them, and I had like two or three others, which maybe I'll remember as we go through the episode more. But this episode was beautifully bookended, and there was nothing extraneous. Everything, even these little tiny jokey sort of lines, came back around at the end, and it was really fantastic. Um, so let's get into more of the A-plot. So... Um, you know, they, they arrive at this Avatar Day and they think it's going to be this great celebration of the Avatar because everywhere that they've gone, for the most part, the Avatar has been like a revered legendary figure. And it turns out that this particular um, city does not have the same, <laughs> the same affection for the Avatar. And they bring out these huge wooden statues of um, Kiyoshi and Roku and then Aang and Kiyoshi and Roku's statues are very like stately and elegant and <laughs> then Aang is just like this goofy grin like, super ridiculous. It almost looks like he has braces. The, mm -hmm. Like the statue of Aang almost looks like he has braces which made me laugh really hard. Yeah, it's really <laughs> funny and they yeah, and they burn them um, and it's actually really hilarious because they're all remarking on the, you know, the procession. And this is when they still think it's like a celebration. And um, a man runs by with a torch and Sokka has lost his boomerang. I guess we skipped over that, too. That's in this episode. So it, in the beginning, oh, yeah. that's a thing that's in the beginning. End. Yes. Yeah, that is. That's one of them. The boomerang comes back again at the end. The Fire Nation uh, steals it from him and. They pause, and they go back, and they get Aang's staff, and they go back, and they get Katara's scroll, and then Sokka's like, well, what about my boomerang? Are you saying that we can go back for your things and not mine? And Katara's like, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going back for your boomerang. Um, but so Sokka's like sad Sokka for the whole first quarter of this episode, because he doesn't have his boomerang, and he doesn't he has no idea. He doesn't know who he is. He's now just like ponytail guy. Well, yeah, because it was they were they're grocery shopping and the guy is like, "Here's your produce, ponytail guy." And Sokka's like, "Aw, I used to be boomerang guy." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the other thing. When they buy the groceries, they give him waterbending money, and they and he's like, "Oh, waterbending money," and they're like, "Is that okay?" And he's like, "Sure." But then later on, when they try to pay Ang's bail with waterbending money or water tribe money, they're like, "Nope, not acceptable." <laughs> so it's like that was just another little thing that always came back around. It was really great. Um, so Sokka sees the torch. Sorry, I'm jumping all over the place because I don't have my notes in front of me today. So you're just gonna have to bear with me as I jump from thing to thing. Um, so Sokka is kind of pondering having a torch he's like they're really cool and pretty manly but i don't know <laughs> and then of course they use the torch to light these statues on fire um katara douses them with water and ang faces the angry crowd and that's when they accuse him of murdering their leader uh several hundred years ago and as kiyoshi he agrees yep as kiyoshi and he agrees to obey by their trial laws, uh, and he can't pay bail because he only has water tribe money, and so they they lock him up. And this was one of the only things about this episode that I was like, this is weird and it doesn't make sense. <laughs> but they put him in, he's in, like, the stocks, like, with the head and his, his head and his arms, like, through the, the stocks. And he is in just open air. There's just tall walls all around him, but he's in, like, a walled courtyard, that has no 
Roof, well, well, and the stocks just, don't fit him. He can just yeah, take yeah, them off. Yeah, he just like, pulls his head out. Yeah, and so and Katara and Sokka, when they go to visit him in the jail, they are the ones inside an enclosure, looking in like through the bars to him. And so, and then later he demonstrates that he can easily slip out of the the stocks. And so he's really, it's really just his own like honor that's keeping him there because he could very easily like just airlift <laughs> right out of this thing. Um... So I thought that was a little weird. I was kind of like, why are we doing this? But okay. Yeah, but at least, like, put him in the dungeon. Like, what? I don't know. But I noticed that. Yeah, I mean, I I, I thought it was pretty clear that Aang's just doing this for the sake of appeasing. And I, I think the other thing I think is interesting is that all of them have such faith in the Avatar, not just Aang, but they're like, Aang would never kill anybody, mm-hmm. even in his past lives or as Kyoshi. So the whole structure of this episode is while Aang is in prison, Sokka and Katara go to investigate what really happened with whatever information they have, which leads to some hilarious... Sokka with this like funky mm-hmm. like Ming Dynasty magistrate. He goes full hat. Sherlock Holmes, full he Sherlock Holmes yeah, he, with the pipe and the hat. Yep. Each of these episodes is like might, a parody or a send up of something. This one, this first one is Sherlock. Yeah. And what I love is too is like he's got the pipe, and then Katara's like, "Where did you get this?" <laughs> Just putting a lampshade on it. They're like, "Yeah, we know what we're doing." Um, so, you know, there's, supposedly there's this evidence, you know, the footprint of Kyoshi on the edge of a cliff where she pushed Chin off the edge, she came out of this temple, and, you know, so there's all these sort of clues that Sokka and Katara then have to investigate by going to Kyoshi Island to see, you know, to see if they can find any more information to exonerate Aang. Wait, where are they going? Kyoshi Island. Wait, where? <laughs> I thought you were going to mention this. <laughs> My favorite human in the entire universe in this story lives on Kyoshi Island, right? So she's totally going to show up in this episode, right? Because they're on Kyoshi Island. It's not like I lost my mind or anything when they went there. It's not like I lost my mind and maybe screamed at my laptop as I was watching this episode when they went to Kyoshi Island. And then... You know, Sokka sort of very casually is like, oh, so is Suki around? Um, My queen, Suki. But no, she was so inspired by her last encounter with our heroes that she is off fighting in the war, so she's not around. And I may have thrown a minor temper tantrum at that point in time. When they first show up... um, How dare you? The the Kyoshi people are just as disappointed that Aang isn't with uh, Sokka and Katara. And Mm -hmm. I wrote wrote down that the people of Kyoshi are exactly as disappointed as Kelly is right now that there's no Suki. Yeah, that there's no Suki in this episode. No, I was significantly (laughs) more disappointed. They just kind of were like, oh, and like turned around and went on with their lives, whereas I threw a fit and was very (laughs) upset and texted you all with all the caps lock I possessed. <laughs> Although my favorite is Foamy Mouth Guy she makes mm-hmm. another appearance. He does. And he gets he self-conscious at some point. He does get self-conscious like, about it. Oh, like, was I just foaming at the mouth about this other guy? Sorry, I'll just skulk away. He's just gonna wipe my mouth off <laughs> and just kind of slink off to the side. That's what I mean, like, the acting in this episode, in these cu- couple of episodes, are just incredible. Just, like, they allow themselves, even though, it, again, it's a short runtime. they allow themselves 
to linger on these kind of comedic moments where there's no dialogue spoken. You know, like the whole uh-huh. segment with Foamy Mouth Guy is actually kind of long. But it's funny, and I laughed really hard, and I, you know, I, like, all, all the whole episode's like this. And particularly Sokka makes some really great expressions, and kind of the, hmm. <laughs> and I love it, too, that Katara keeps undercutting all of his revelations. So, like, Sokka would make a revelation, like, oh, well, Kyoshi couldn't have been here at this particular time because of... And then Katara would just come in and, like, totally undercut his moment of glory, and he's just like, <laughs> shh, I want to say it. I want to solve it. <laughs> at one point, he shoves her out of the way just as she's about to undercut him. And I laughed really loud at that, like really, really loud. He Because it, it was, was quick. Really it was like, he just was done with it. It was like the third time she tried to pull that crap on him <laughs> and he wasn't having it. <laughs> they have such a realistic sibling relationship. I, I love it. <laughs> it's really great. So, so, of course, at the very end, they solve the mystery, quote-unquote. they like, well, Kyoshi couldn't have done it because she has enormous feet. She was on Kyoshi Island at sunrise when it was supposed to have happened or whatever. Um, and so they give all of this evidence to Aang when he's on trial to see if he can't exonerate himself. And it goes horribly. Mm-hmm. It's really cute and really cringeworthy. Poor Aang. He's just like, ah. He's like, fact one, I have feet. Right. <laughs> and I saw a painting fact once. two, there was a painting that I am in. <laughs> and so, it could not have been me. Um, and so then, at some point, you know, they're trying to exonerate themselves and I guess the spirit of Kyoshi actually shows up. Yeah, yes. well, Katara has Aang dress up in her things. Yes. And so he puts on the makeup and he is wearing like her robes and her headdress and everything and nothing's happening and he's kind of like, oh, I'm Kyoshi. <laughs> and then um, you know, the actual Kyoshi, I guess he channels her and she comes down and she tells the story, which is that um, she actually did kill him. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. <laughs> That's like she, my favorite revelation. She confesses. She's like, "Yeah, he was a tyrant, and I killed him." Um, and so they're going to, you know, punish him. So they've got this big wheel that they spin to try to determine what his punishment is going to be. And everyone in the crowd is shouting out, you know, torture and. This and that. And Katara's like, community service. Community service. <laughs> I actually wrote down I all of the... It's actually an option on the wheel. I, yeah. I wrote down all of the little symbols or whatever. I wanted to see if I could yeah. get them all. Um, as far as I can tell, one of them, one of the guys shouted out torture machine, which I couldn't really figure out which symbol meant torture machine. But as far as I can tell, there was uh, fried in oil, of course. Burned, eaten by bears, uh, razor pit, community service, whipped, I think a bed of nails, which may have been the torture machine, Mm -hmm. and lastly, eaten by a shark. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So they spin it, and this is one thing that bothered me, because I feel like this show is usually much better about details, but they spin it, and it lands on boiled in oil, and the one next to boiled in oil when it stops is the bed of nails, 
And then later, when the Fire Nation comes and they want Aang to save him, and he refuses because he's like, "Well, I'm you know about to be boiled in oil. Sorry, can't." The you know, I guess do we get a name? He's like the chief of the town, or the I think the, the, mayor, the, the mayor, magistrate, I think or the mayor, or somebody. Yeah. He moves mayor the wheel. Mayor Tong. Sorry. He moves the wheel over one notch, but it's not... Then it's community service. It's not <laughs> the Benedales yeah, anymore. Yeah, I, I noticed that, too. It, it wasn't the actual... Like, it wouldn't have been community service yeah. if he moved it. I noticed that, too. It was a small goof. I was like, oh, well. <laughs> but so then, you know, he performs his community service, and he saves the town from the Fire Nation. And uh, they have a new Avatar Day in his honor. With the unfried dough to commemorate the fact that he wasn't boiled in oil. Which I maintain should still be fried, because fri- A, fried dough is awesome, and B, you can like eat fried dough and be like, wasn't it great how we didn't fry that one guy that time? That's true, we can do that right. too. But I like, was just thinking it's, it could be like cookie dough, yeah. like raw cookie dough. No, raw bread dough is not the same as <laughs> cookie dough. No, raw bread dough is really gross to eat. <laughs> yeah, they were making appropriate faces at the end there when they were slurping down those yeah. like gloopy avatar shapes. Yeah, and Sokka's like, this is the worst town we've ever been yep. to. Yep, last line of the episode. <laughs> there, were, there were some moments in here that made me laugh so hard was, I can't remember what it was in response to, but it's something that Sokka says, and then Katara just goes, brilliant, Sokka. And the way she delivers that, complete with the eye roll that she gives her brother is so great. This is, I mean, the acting in this episode is so good and so spot on about about everything. And of course, at the very end, they've defeated... So, like, the whole episode started because they were attacked by a bunch of Fire Nation people on rhinos, the rough rhinos. And, you know, Sokka lost her boomerang, his boomerang thing then, and then the same group of Fire Nation people come to attack the town that they're in, and, of course, Aang defeats them, and they drop Sokka's boomerang. He's like, boomerang, you do always come Favorite moment of the episode, like, straight up. Like, I... This is one of those things that I forgot. Like, I don't remember this happening last time I watched it or whatever. And that was just, like, such a happy moment for me. Like, it was like seeing it for the first time. Like, oh, finally, he gets his boomerang back. He knows who he is again. (laughs) I was surprisingly really upset that he lost his boomerang. Me too. Too. I was like, oh, poor Sokka. And, oh, my favorite line in this episode was actually kind of towards the very end. And they're talking about, so the mayor, Mayor Tong is like, so the way the trials work in this town, what do you mean evidence? It's I tell my side of the story, you tell your side of the story, and then I make a decision. Um, And I think Katara's like, well, that's not fair. That's not justice. And the mayor's like, well, that is what, that's why we call it justice. It's because it's just us. It's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, terrible, but kind of great at the same time. <laughs> um, God, there's so much in here. Like I said, I, I tend to think of this one as a standalone, so I tend to skip it. So this time around, I just noticed it more things that I wouldn't have, because I don't think I've seen this one as, as often as I have the next two coming up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I just have mostly, like, background notes, things, stuff like, um, I noticed that 
the city that they have Avatar Day in, along with, I think, every other Earth city that we've seen or maybe will see, um, they're all circular, all of them, um, which, I don't know, I just never noticed before. I guess it just goes with that Earth disc, you know, shape, mm-hmm. theme, whatever, stuff like that. Um, oh, the... Uh, at the beginning, when um, the they're doing the whole burning an effigy, burning man thing, um, and Aang is <laughs> accused of you know murdering the guy, one of the crowd people's like, "Let me show you what we really think of you." And he turns around and he makes a fart noise with his mouth, but he like shakes his ass at Aang. <laughs> like this is advanced citizenry right here. This this place is evolved. Well, somebody else in the crowd says, that party pooper's ruining Avatar Day. <laughs> and I, that party pooper, I, th- I think that just makes me laugh, made me laugh really hard as well. Um, I also noticed, I call him Chifu because that's all I ever remember him from because he's, that's the character he plays in Mulan. In Mulan, I did recognize the voice, his voice. The voice actor, and I think he's been in a different episode of that he has, before. I think he was in one in season one. He was, but was the like, dour monk in the air temple. Right, right. And my note was actually, oh, it's Chifu again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when I heard his voice, I was like, oh yeah, it's you. I actually recognized him. It's like the only voice actor I've recognized on this show so far. But I was hey. like, this is the guy from Mulan. Oh, I mm. meant to actually ask this. I guess last time we saw uh, the Kiyoshi Warrior episode, um, because it happened again in this one, um, there's like a little girl who calls Ang Angie. Mm-hmm. And it absolutely made me think of Kelly because that's like one of her pet. You, not only with me, won't like, first off, a lot of people, background, like whatever, a lot of people call me Mikey. It's been a thing my whole life, and Kelly refuses to do it. <laughs> but I'm not the only friend. Like, I remember she's got a, you've got a friend, Josh, who I've, I remember mm-hmm. people going, Joshy, and you just being like, oh. It's the E sound in particular, like the Mikey, Joshy, Mm I hate it. I hate it. So, oh, I hate it. But it's also with, like, just with other names that I don't... So my husband's name is David, and I call him David. And I just found out that people at work call him Dave. I'm like, (laughs) why? Why? Like, ugh, no. There's nothing wrong with the name Dave, but my husband is not Dave. He's David. Like, get it right. (laughs) So, yeah, Angie is bleh. (laughs) And if you really want to gross Kel out, call her husband uh, Davey. Yeah, I was going to say. No, don't do that. I could actually see Dave. Davey, no. Right, no no one is actually called that. That's like. No one is actually Davey. If you're older than eight, you're not ever called Davey. But Dave, I could see. A lot of his friends from college and everything call him Dave. And I, when I met him, and I, you know, he introduced himself as David. And I was like, do you want to be called anything else? Do you care? And he was like, nope, I don't care. And so now he's just David in my mind. And I knew so many other Daves growing up. And he was so different from all of them <laughs> that it just, no, mm-mm, no. And so now I can't. I can't do it. And when people call him that, it's weird to me. I feel like they're talking about someone else. Fair enough. <laughs> oh, my favorite, my official favorite line of the episode was, um, 
when Sa- when Katara was about to undercut Sokka, and he's like, ahem, special outfit, hat, <laughs> pipe. Do these things mean anything to you? I lost my shit at that line. Sokka is just great everywhere, because there's something else at the very end, too, where his line was, I do believe in the power of stuff. Oh, right. And I'm pretty sure they robbed like, Kyoshi's shrine to get all that stuff to Aang. I was going to say yeah, the same they thing, did. too. <laughs> there was just, like, an because off-screen like, the heist. The curator's just like, the curator's like, don't touch this, you know, don't touch her clothes, don't touch her fans, don't touch this, and then they show up and Aang is dressed in all of Kyoshi's things, so they must have stolen it from the museum. Um... Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else about this particular episode. Hair loopies get a mention. Katara's hair loopies. <laughs> yep, yep. Imagine you without your arrow, or Katara without her hair loopies. Yeah, that's all I got for this one. Are there any mm. other voice actors, or only oh, that one guy? Yeah, no, there's, um... I actually looked ahead, and I don't know how many episodes we're going to do next time, but... Those episodes have no one new. It's all established cast members. This week we have a crap ton of new people and a whole bunch of repeat people. Um, Jennifer Hale voiced Avatar Kiyoshi. She was June in one of the earlier episodes, the bounty mm. hunter on the star-nosed mole wolf monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, James C., who played the Omashu Elder, is also the cabbage guy. Um, yeah, sorry if I'm repeating myself. I know a lot of these names got mentioned, and probably a lot of the roles, too. But uh, James Hong is the mayor of the guy you guys are talking about. He was Mayor Tong. He was Mr. Ping in Kung Fu Panda. He was the Chinese ambassador in a few episodes of The West Wing. As well as a million other things. Because he's one of those actors that gets around. He is a worker. He has a very distinctive voice, I think. Very distinctive voice. Um, Brian McKittrick, who's this is his only credit is for this show, and he's previously he was the pirate Barker, but in this episode, he is foaming mouth guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, Jason Miller uh, plays the scary prisoner with the snake tattoo who charges Aang, and then they talk about their feelings together because that's what prison is like. Um, he, I forgot about that whole segment. That was really great. Yeah, and they give they give him advice on Katara. And... Um, he is the lead singer of an industrial rock metal band called Godhead, and that is lowercase G, uppercase Oddhead because they're provocative. <laughs> 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 um, he also has some voice work in Yu Gi Oh, One Piece, and eventually uh, Legend of Korra. And I think the last person on this list, for this episode anyways, is, excuse me, Colonel Monkey, who is the leader of the Rough Rhinos, is played by a guy named Malachi Throne. He was on the West Wing as the Israeli foreign minister, Ben Yosef, who dies in a plane crash after giving Leo McGarry the Israeli Medal of David, I think, maybe? That sounds right. Um, he, he played God in a few episodes of Animaniacs, and (laughs) he played, um, one of the Czech experts in Catch Me If You Can, like, I don't know if you guys remember the scene, but it's like, 
Tom Hanks is talking to Czech experts about the ink on the paper, and he's like, you need big machines, big, the size of a room, and that's how they eventually catch him, like, at the end of the movie on Christmas, mm-hmm. whatever. Anyways, his name is Malachi Throne. Hmm. Yeah. That's, uh, nice. that's that. I say we move on. What say you? Yeah. I mean, I don't have anything okay. else, really, about this one, so... No. Right, so let's move on to the... Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Let us move on to the Blind Bandit. So... Do you have a recap for this one, Kelly? The Blind Bandit is episode six. So, Aang is continuing his search for an earth-bending master to teach him. He is trying to find someone who fits Boomy's description of someone who listens and waits. That search brings him to an Earth Kingdom city that has a WWE-style... Uh, <laughs> tournament that I cannot recall the exact name of it. It's called Earth, Earth Rumble, Rumble Six. Six. That's right. Earth Rumble <laughs> Six, which boasts uh, of having the best Earthbenders pitted against one another uh, in a fight to crown the champion. So he attends that tournament and finds a small girl who is blind whose fighting name is the Blind Bandit, and she handily dispatches with all of her opponents. She is, you know, she has the belt. She's the the champion. And Aang enters the ring to fight against her and realizes that she is able... Well, he doesn't enter to fight. He wants to talk to her to see if she'll teach him. Um, but she has no interest in talking to him, so she <laughs> she fights him. And we learn that she is able to quote-unquote see um, her earthbending gifts allow her to know where things are that are in contact with the earth. And so Aang... Yeah, like the vibrations and and things like that. Yeah, and so Aang confuses her a little bit because, you know, when he kind of airbends and flies from place to place, she can't... She's not quite certain where she is until he touches back down and comes in contact with the earth again. Uh, it, he beats her, she leaves, and then they go on a search to try to find out who she is to convince her to teach him. And they find out that she is the daughter of a wealthy, um, aristocrat who, she's essentially leading a double life. And, uh, and yeah, that's the basic gist of the episode. Sorry, without having my, my recaps there, <laughs> it's a little bit difficult to give you a succinct uh, a succinct run-through, but that's basically what happens. Um, there really is no B-plot in this story. We don't see Zuko or, or Iroh or Azula or anybody like that. It's pretty much just this main story. And this was a pretty great episode, I thought. Um, yeah, for sure. I really liked this one a lot. Um less, I mean, there were certainly great comedic moments throughout it, but on the whole, more serious than the previous episode that we saw. So, let's kind of go a little bit more in depth. When they arrive at this Earth Kingdom city, someone stops them on the street and gives them a flyer for this like earthbending class. He's like, he master use earthbending academy. Yeah, you guys like to throw rocks. Um, <laughs> I laughed really hard at and, that because it made me think so, of that that David uh, Dave Chappelle sketch 
where he's, you know, he's the crackhead, and he's like, I smoke rocks! <laughs> Anyways, continue, Cal, sorry. No, um... So, he... Aang decides to go to this school and see what it's all about and see if this person could be a teacher for him, and, you know, he's like, nope, this is not the right guy for me at all. <laughs> and then they overhear these other kids talking about this Earth Rumble 6, and Katara chases after them and comes back with their tickets, and when Aang and Sokka are like, how'd you get those? And she's like, oh, you know, a girl has her ways, and it's kind of implied that, you know, she flirted with them and got the tickets, but then we cut away and we see that she's frozen them in ice. <laughs> Basically, basically, she mugged them. <laughs> and left them in a really crazy position. They're, like, frozen to walls that face each other with their... Like, they are parallel to the floor. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're horizontal to the floor, and their heads are, like, touching each other. It's really yeah, weird. Yeah, I don't even know how she got them up there like that. <laughs> very weird. It's very weird. And so... Oh, and then one thing that I wanted to mention, too, is that... So, Aang attends this school, and they all have, like, a little uniform that they wear. And so, he wears the uniform. And I feel like, if not the first, this is definitely one of the first times that we ever see Aang in clothes that are not his own. We've seen him put other things over his clothes. Like, when he was embodying Kyoshi, he, like, puts her robes over his. But you could still see his clothes underneath. And in this case, he's just wearing this earth-bending school uniform for most of this episode. And it looked like it belonged to, like, his big brother or something. Like, it was a hand-me-down. It didn't quite fit him. The he the helmet was, like, so tilted, and the robes didn't hang this, right. This episode actually had a commentary track with the creators on it. And so they, were, so they talk about Master Yu, and they sort of compare him to, like, a strip mall martial arts academy. <laughs> Um, especially because the coupon they get is, like, first lesson free. And then, you know, they're like, so they imagine that, yeah, the first lesson might be free, but then Aang probably had to shell out money to buy that uniform oh, just yeah. to attend the class. Um, and so, like, in the class, of course, it's kind of useless to Aang. Like, and also he's, like, the oldest in, like, his, like, little beginner class of Earthbenders. Um, and, and then, like, at the end of the lesson, of course... Master Yu comes up and he's like, so that was your, how was your first lesson? You know, you get a discount if you pay for an entire year's worth in advance. Um, pretty funny to me. <laughs> I, thought that was, I thought that was pretty great. But yeah, that's what leads them into Earth Rumble 6, which I thought was great. And mm -hmm. kind of a highlight of this entire episode was that whole Earth Rumble segment. Yeah. Well, so have you guys ever watched WWE? Like, was that ever a thing that you watched? When I was a kid, yeah. Not for me. Mark loves WWE, but I I never was into pro wrestling. I mean, back in the uh -huh. days of, like, Hulk Hogan, before he was Hollywood Hulk Hogan <laughs> in the WCW. I used to watch when I was a kid. Before yeah. he was suing Gawker. Exactly. Um, I, I myself never watched it, like, for my own personal enjoyment. But when I was a freshman in college, I was friends with this group of guys who were really into it. They were really into lots of stuff. That was weird. And so I, I saw a lot of stuff that year that, like, I, I never would have otherwise seen. Like, Deliverance. The only reason I've ever watched Deliverance is because I was friends with these guys. And if you don't know what Deliverance is, like, just don't bother. Your, your we life. mentioned it in the Swamp Day. Oh, we did, didn't we? Episode. We did. 
so little like, banjo riff from Deliverance. That, yeah, and then there were some other ones. I did watch Dragon Ball Z because of them, and that was okay. Um, I enjoyed that. But a lot of the stuff that I watched with these guys that I was friends with was just bizarre. And one of the things was they were super into professional wrestling. Like, super into it. And we watched a lot of it. And Rumble Earth 6 is very faithful to <laughs> a lot of that uh, just the whole atmosphere and everything. I loved how the boulder speaks in the third person uh-huh. the entire time. That's based on The Rock. Mm-hmm. And clearly the boulder and The Rock. Yeah. The Rock used to speak in the third person like that. Yeah. It's just really great. And Sokka getting... conflicted about fighting a young, blind girl. <laughs> <laughs> the, the boulder is over his conflicted feeling. <laughs> I had that one written down, too. That was so great. Um, and Sokka just gets super into it, you know? Yeah, He's, Sokka becomes... He how to put the hurt in the dirt. He becomes, like, the quintessential WWF, WWE, whatever fan, like... He is that guy that you see, you know, 10,000 of in the arena. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, it's so great. All And all the segments where they're fighting. So the creators were talking about kind of some of the in- inspiration. So Shin Fu, who's like the MC, is based on Vince McMahon. Okay. Who used to, I guess he was a pro wrestler and then became an announcer. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. The Boulder is clearly based on The Rock, but he is actually voiced by a pro wrestler, yep. Mick Foley, yep. a.k.a. Cactus Jack or Mankind. Mankind, yeah, is the one that most people know him by. He had a sock puppet on his hand, Mr. Socko. No? All right, don't worry <laughs> okay. about it. Like I said, I never watched WWE. Um, the hippo is King Kong Bunny. Uh-huh. And Fire Nation Man is like the Iron Sheik. Which I love that Fire Nation Man has a Russian accent. Right. Well, he's not... I mean, I don't think he's specifically supposed to be the Iron Sheik. A lot of the time in, like, the 80s, they brought in, like, a ringer, like... Who, back then, he was a Russian guy. And they're all foreign. Yeah, exactly. They're all foreign. Yeah. That was the point. They said that, you know, for, you know there's always the bad right. guy, and they're always foreign. Who's always so. played by an American, though. <laughs> Which, that's what you get the sense, too, because it's an earthbender, but he's dressed as Fire Nation right. Man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with yeah. a Russian accent. Um, yeah, I I thought oh, I loved those scenes, though. They were so funny. They made me laugh so hard. I thought they were really great. I thought it was really interesting to see some more earthbending. I thought all the characters were hilarious, and so I thought the hippo was hilarious <laughs> with his two big, like, hippo teeth. And the boulder, obviously, was great. Um, so I really, I thought the whole thing was more enjoyable than the professional wrestling that I've seen in, in my time. I mean, yeah, um, if they could move rock like that, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I really liked that. And then they bring out the blind bandit. And she <laughs> is amazing. We don't know who she is yet. You know, we just know her as the blind bandit. She's great. And she and Aang have that, you know, battle that we mentioned briefly in the recap and Aang defeats her and when she storms off um you know she's leaving and Aang is like I need you to teach me and you know talk to me or whatever and she's just walking away from him and she parts the wall she moves the rock she bends it and then walks through through and slams it shut behind her and I just you know she's just swallowed by the wall essentially Uh I just thought that was so great um 
And so then they are... Oh, and one, one other thing that was really funny before we move on is that when Aang goes into the arena to battle the blind bandit, he's like, I don't want to fight you, I just want to talk. And Sokka's like, no, no talking! Right. Fight! And, like, Katara <laughs> smacks him on the head. It's like, don't boo him! <laughs> Sokka also cried when, um, when Toph beat um, the boulder. Like, she... She, like, yeah. kicked the dirt out un- underneath him, and he did a split, and Sokka just started weeping. That was awesome, because it was so subtle. You know, we've seen all these guys do, you know, these big, like, rock-crushing, you know, explosive bending, and she just diverts his foot. You know, mm-hmm. she just pushes his foot away. And later, we see that she can do big, impressive bending as well um you know but it's just such a subtle little you know thing that was so great um and also the entire fight i mean it it plays out longer in the animation because there's you can kind of see it from like toff's point of view mm-hmm. sort of because you see like the kind of vibrations come in and everything and it's in slow motion but if you actually think about that fight played up super fast she defeats him in like Half a second. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She like trips him and then knocks him off the edge of the ring and she's done. Like that's it. Yeah, yeah. I. I mean, realistically, I mean, personality-wise, I'm probably somewhere between Sokka and um, Zuko, if I'm being honest. But when I grow up, I kind of want to be Toph. I mean, if in my yeah, heart of hearts, she's pretty great. She's she's probably my favorite on this entire show and. Mm-hmm. I couldn't be happier that she's now on the show. Like, now I feel like, okay, the gang is all here. We can finally begin, you know? Yeah. Toph is the one spoiler that I had for Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, And I didn't know much about her. I knew that there was a character named Toph and that she was a girl and that she was great. And then I think she started to tell me more about it and then I cut her off. This was my friend Mallory. When Mallory found out that we were going to be doing the Avatar podcast, she got really excited and started talking about, you know, how much she loves the show and, you know, was just really excited. And she's like, and then you're going to get to Toph and she's my favorite and this and that. I was like, well, I don't know who that is. (laughs) Stop talking. Um, Seriously, Mallory. Yeah, so (laughs) she's the one spoiler that that I've had is I knew that there was this character named Toph, but I don't really know much about her or what's going to happen. Oh, you know what we brushed right over? was Sokka going bag shopping. <gasps> See, this is why I'm so upset that I don't have my notes, because I have an extended thing in my notes about how Sokka is me and I am him in this moment <laughs> of shopping. Where it's, it's like, like, I like it, and he's so indecisive about whether or not he wants to buy it. Yeah, he's like, I really like it, and Katara's like, you deserve something nice, like, get it for yourself, absolutely. And he's like, but it's so much money, and I don't know. And he's like, she's like, okay, and she walks away, and then he's like, I think I'm going to get it. Like, uh, this is me every time I try to buy. And then immediately he has buyer's remorse and yells at Momo about it, I think. And then Momo just, like, crawls inside the bag like he's, uh, I don't know, Paris Hilton's little shitty dog or whatever. You know, she's got... (laughs) Yeah, little chihuahua. (laughs) That's amazing. Oh, God. facial expression when he goes back to buy the bag and he's got this, like, hilarious, like, exaggerated happy face when he's, like, got the bag. And he's all like, yay! It's, <laughs> <laughs> like, my favorite. And I actually forgot to mention this kind of the last episode, but this show's really kind of good at 
dismantling toxic masculinity. I have. Mm-hmm. I actually have a whole thing about that in here on my notes. Yeah. When Aang's in the prison and he's talking to those, like, big, burly prison guys with all the tattoos, and all they do is they, like, sit and talk about their feelings, mm-hmm. and it's not, like, a macho thing. And then, of course, this episode, we established that Sokka likes to shop. And there's a line that I love later, because Toph called Aang Twinkle Toes. Mm-hmm. And Sokka's like, don't answer to that. It's not manly. Mm-hmm. It's not manly. And then Katara's just like, you're the one with the bag whose, matches the be- who- whose bag matches the belt. And I was just like, that's amazing. But they- there's like no real judgment passed on Sokka for the fact that he likes to shop and, you know, has accessories and none of that. Like, you mm-hmm. know, anytime he tries to assert his masculinity, someone just kind of takes him down a peg and it's like, eh. There's, like, a bunch of, I don't know if emasculating is the right word, but there's a bunch of, like, towing that line stuff, too. Uh, in the episode, uh, the Avatar Day, Mayor Tong almost gets rhino-horned right through the crotch. Aang is cross-dressing. Um, you know, in this one, Sokka is shopping for a bag, and he loves that his belt goes with it, and... Toph's, mm-hmm. like, all of her insults are about someone else being another little girl in the ring, like, besides mm-hmm. her. Um, Colin Aang, Twinkle Toes. I mean, the list just went on and on. I was like, wow, they're really, they're really swinging at that, t- like, in these three episodes, too. Yeah. Well, I liked, in the previous episode, too, Avatar Day, when Aang is wearing all of Kyoshi's things, um, and then he channels her, and then the Fire Nation comes and they battle, he sheds, like, the robe and the headdress or whatever, but the makeup is still on. Yeah. So he's back in his regular clothes, but he's still wearing the makeup, which looks amazing on him, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it does. I was like, oh, wow. They, like, because they, it still looks like him. I feel like it would be really... I don't draw, but I imagine that it would be difficult to have him still look like Aang while wearing that makeup that's so drastically different from the way you normally draw his face. And I feel like it would you know, mess with your proportions or whatever. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe it's not. But he still looks like Aang in the makeup that Kyoshi normally wears. And so, and I just loved that, that, you know, I feel like most shows would have had him take off the robe and the thing and then like wiped his face, but they just keep him in it the whole time. And it's great. Well, it's like this, it's like when Sokka was in the makeup and the robes mm-hmm. and he's like, I'm not a, oh, never mind. Right. You yeah. know, that whole, that whole, like, anytime they try to assert that kind of patriarchal, like toxic masculinity thing. Nope. They just, they just deflate yep. that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's and really great. And they do great. it so masterfully. And, and every time they do it, they do it so well, and it's very subtle. They don't, like, put a lampshade on it to point it out. They, it's just there. Right. We don't have a um, very special episode or anything. It's just <laughs> built into the fabric of the show, which is great. So then the second half of this show um, becomes about <clears throat> identifying who the blind bandit is, because Aang is now convinced that she's the right teacher for him she waited and she listened and that's what brought her victory and so he's like this is the person who needs to teach me so they go back to the earthbending school and they talk to those same guys that Katara mugged (laughs) 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 and you know and there's some really great posturing um you know where she's like yeah I didn't think so (laughs) oh I did look something up about those two guys um one of them, I guess, has a haircut that is the same as the hippo's haircut because yeah, he's, he's a, a fan, fan of the hippo, hippo yeah. yeah. <laughs> that little tuft right. of hair, kind of like right here. That's adorable. <laughs> um, but Aang, 
you know, asks them, you know, who's a blind bandit? And they're like, we don't know. Nobody knows. It's a secret. And then Aang makes the connection that she is the girl from his vision in the swamp, which I want to put a pin in and come back to later. So we'll come back to that. So he makes that connection, and he remembers that she has the flying pig. And so he asks about that, and the boys say, oh, well, that's, you know, the symbol of this house. Uh, but they the don't Beifongs. have... The Bay Fongs. but they don't have a daughter. And so Aang's like, well, it's, a, it's good enough for me to go on. Let's start there. And so they go there, and of course, Toph is there. And so we immediately have to reckon with the fact that the town at large doesn't know she exists. That her family has kept her existence, for whatever reason, a secret. That it is common knowledge that the Beifongs don't have a daughter. So that is screwed up thing number one. There's a lot about parenting in this episode and the next episode <laughs> that are going to be really, like, interesting to unpack and also really enraging for me to unpack. And so that's the first one. So she talks to them, and she is, um, she looks different. Her hair, when she is in the ring as the blind bandit, her hair is <clears throat> down and in her face. And then when they meet her on the grounds of her estate, I guess, her hair is swept back. And she's much more, you know, she looks like the the daughter of a wealthy nobleman. And th she talks to them for a few minutes and is like, you know, I'm not interested. Get away from me, whatever. And she calls the guards and fiends helplessness so that the guards will come. So Katara, Aang, and Sokka have to kind of scatter and run away. And then we see her speaking with her parents. And they are talking about... Now, is it... I I thought so but I wasn't sure and I didn't go back to confirm it. Is it the same is her individual tutor for earthbending the same person who runs the school? Yes. Yes. Okay that's what I thought but I wasn't certain. Um, and Master so he's you. There and he's Sorry. Master you. Yeah. He's there and he's kind of saying oh I'm <clears> teaching <throat> her the very basics we're keeping it really safe you know she's Everybody, her parents and everyone is very preoccupied with the fact that she's blind and therefore they assume that she is helpless and frail and, you know, um, so they're having this discussion and Aang arrives and at first <laughs> the messenger comes in and is like, oh, you know, you have a visitor and Toph's father is really outraged, like, who dare would come see me unannounced? And they're like, it's the like, Avatar. Who thinks they're so important they can just come to my house? Uh, the Avatar, sir? <laughs> oh. <laughs> and suddenly there's a and feast. Then, yeah. Well, the dinner scene is amazing. Yeah. Because it's the earthbending equivalent of Toph kicking Aang in the shin underneath the table mm -hmm. to stop him from from talking or saying anything because it's very clear that she wants to keep her identity as the blind bandit, as a powerful earthbender, a secret. Uh, so she clearly has this whole double life going on and so anytime Aang tries to bring it up, he's like, oh, I'm sure she's a better bender than you think she is, you know. <laughs> Toph, like, jerks his seat forward and slams him into the table and, you know, they kind of go back and forth. Aang sneezes and blows, you know, the feast <laughs> all over them and um, it's hilarious. They were trying really to have wonderful. like a covert food fight or something. Like, 
They didn't want to get caught, but they were throwing shit at each other. Mm-hmm. And it's really funny because every time Toph does it, you know, and she causes a huge commotion by she's hurting like Aang. Very, very yeah, her, like we're yeah, eating. her father looks over to her and she's just like, oh, it couldn't be me. I'm right, she might as well have a napkin girl. on the corner of her mouth, you know, kind of that kind of thing. <laughs> what? What? I'm yeah. blind. I don't know. <laughs> and so later she visits Aang and kind of calls a truce and she explains to him how it is that her bending allows her to be more aware of her surroundings and more independent than anyone in her family will give her credit for or understand. And she talks about how wistful she is that Aang and his friends can go anywhere and do anything that they want and that she can't, that she is so limited by her family's rules and expectations of her and that her only release has been in creating this secret identity and being the blind bandit. But even that is not, no one knows that it's her and it's something that she has to hide away and keep secret. And so even that isn't fulfilling uh, in the way that she really wants it to be. And Aang and Toph get kidnapped by every, all the wrestlers. <laughs> basically <laughs> yeah Shinfu um, the the plot being that somebody comes up to Shinfu and says I don't think Aang was actually earthbending he never right. touched that rock and everything and she, I think that they that taught she took the a dive bandit, yeah took a dive and they split the pot so they're like going to get their money back basically mm-hmm. oh plot stuff who cares about that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk more about feelings <laughs> <laughs> you know that's why I'm here is for uh, all the feelings. I do. Um, yes, and so they get kidnapped, and they're put in those same little cages that Boomy was in. You know, like the metal anti-earth bending cages. Um, and so they, her family finds out that she's been kidnapped. Sokka and Katara and her father and Master Yu all go. They pay the ransom to get Toph out, so... Can we can we pause uh, real quick? Sorry. Yes, um, please. The, uh, when they find the ransom note, it's stabbed through a, you know, there's a dagger through a scroll in the lawn or whatever, and they're like, oh, there's a ransom note. And Sokka's like, I can't believe it. I got the boulders autograph! <laughs> autograph! <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. So I good. Sokka. I love Sokka. Sorry, I just wanted it's to throw amazing. that in there. No, please do, because again, that's something I have in my notes, and I feel completely at sea without my notes in front of me. So definitely <clears throat> chime in whenever I'm uh, missing something. Um, so they go, and they pay the ransom, and they set Toph free. And then Sokka and Katara are like, what about Aang? Let him go too. And they say, they, they pull out the Fire Nation reward, you know, that we've seen plastered everywhere asking for Aang, and they figure that the Fire Nation's going to pay a lot more money for him than anyone else would, so they're going to keep Aang. And he tries to tell them, you know, go, go, I'll be fine. But, of course, Katara and Sokka aren't going to abandon Aang and just leave him there. So they convince Toph to help save them. They're like, you can take on all these earthbenders. We've seen you do it. You can do it. And her father is outraged. And he's like, she is tiny and frail and helpless and, you know, vulnerable. And just hearing her father be so dismissive of her ignites something in Toph. And she's like, no, actually I can help. And I'm going to do this. 
and she takes all of them on. It's awesome. And it's amazing. And so like good. So, so it's this whole big thing, and like, you know, one by one, she's taken them out, and we can talk about that in a minute. But meanwhile, while she, she's doing that, Katara and Sokka are banging on Aang's cage, trying to get him out, and they finally get him out, and he jumps up, and he's ready to go in the fight, and Sokka just shakes his head, and it's like, she's He, like, got waves it. him off. She, she's got yeah. it, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great. Um... It's a really wonderful scene, and this is a thing that I loved, and I felt like as I was writing this down, I was like, I bet they're going to think that this would annoy me, but it doesn't. I actually think it's really cool. She can bend dust. Oh, yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. And it makes sense. Oh, actually, on that note, I, I, um, and we can talk about it in a little while, but I did look up what connection fire and lightning actually have in a logical, real-world way. And there is a pretty good connection there. I know. No, I looked up the same thing, and I did not find anything convincing. Well, then you didn't use the word plasma in your search for a connection, because... I, I did not. Yeah. They're both plasma. I mean, like, the, the long and short of it is that fire and lightning and stars in outer space and even the ionic tails of comets are all plasma. Lots of things are plasma, but I don't think that makes them <laughs> elementally the same thing. Well, elementally, well, the other thing I told Kelly was Agni is the god of fire in Hinduism. And Agni is represented by three things fire, lightning, and the sun. Which, by the way, are all three important things to the fire nation. But that's not. No, no. Lightning, by your logic, though, Kelly, the sun and fire are not the same thing either. Right. Why do you not have a problem with the moon and water being connected? Because nobody's bending the moon and nobody's bending the sun. That's like a connection that I can understand. Like if you want to say that lightning, when lightning occurs naturally in the vicinity, firebenders get a surge of power, like whatever, that's cool. You can make like various connections to things because you have the tides of water pulled by the gravity of the moon and da da da. Like you can make those connections, but Katara isn't out there bending the moon. <laughs> she doesn't have power over that. Zuko doesn't have power over the sun. It's like a harmonious. But Zuko is powered by the sun. Right, and the yeah, comet. But that's different. Yeah, but that's like a source yeah, of and energy. So comet. They're all connected. That's a Here's source of too. energy. Here's the other thing, too, Kelly, because you mentioned this no. before. No, no, no. Why, right, why firebenders can create fire, but none of the other elements mm -hmm. are able to create their own? And the reason that I said was is that they're able to either generate heat in some way to make the air around them volatile to generate fire, which by that same principle, you would be able to generate lightning. If that lightning. example doesn't work for you, Kel, here's one that I've experienced lightning in real life. Is charged particles. Yes, it is. <laughs> and so is fire. And so is fire. Fire just has less of an and ionic so is charge. Fire. All right, we it's, need some kind of a scientist. I'm telling you, I looked this up. To sit no. down. I looked it up too, and well, I got the complete. Uh, Google will tell you anything you want to know. <laughs> I mean, I guess. If you put it in correctly. Here's what I found. I'm getting Kelly. shade thrown at me right now, you guys. Listen, listen. So if you walked into um, a metal workshop where they do welding, you would find two ways of cutting metal. One is an oxycetylene torch, the big sparky thing with the big you know, flame you see in movies and TV and goggles. And the other is a plasma torch, which has a little tiny one-inch, like, 
I wouldn't even call it a flame. And really the real difference is that the plasma beam has a higher ionic charge. Plasma is, I guess, it's just any gas that is burning hot enough that you can see it. And it's, Lightning isn't a gas. It is a gas. It's a gas that's on fire. The gas that is, surrounds the bolt of lightning is the plasma. It's right. what it's what allows the lightning bolt to travel from the sky to. The I point is, if you just jack it up, who listens to this podcast uh-huh. to explain definitively whether or not lightning and fire are the same elemental thing, and I also want everybody who is on my side who agrees that those two things are not compatible. You're not going to find very good yeah, you're on not. your side. <laughs> I am not you're really the not. only... No, I am not the only person you're who watched this show. You're probably not the only show. one, but you're also wrong. <laughs> <laughs> here, here. I'm just going to turn well these words right against you. Uh-huh. You're so anyway, also wrong. It's true that I'm famous for saying that phrase. So anyway, I don't have a problem with the dust bending. That's legit. Oh, good. (laughs) I'm glad we got that. I'm on board with that because that's literally literal particles of earth that are minuscule that are hanging in the air. And so she's not bending the air. She's bending the actual particles in the air. That works for me. It was very, very, very cool. Um... I yeah, I mean, f- that makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. There is something that comes up later in the show that I'm wondering if you will have problems with. But I'm we'll sh- get there when I'm we get there. I'm sure I will. I am nothing if not full of problems. Me too. <laughs> not that I had the problems. I'm sure she will have one, though. But I I loved the dust bending. I loved the whole fight scene. I just thought it was really great. She just takes them out one by one and stacks them up. You know, she it's like the rules of the... The fighting um, of the Earthworm Bull Six itself, where she just tosses them out of the ring, you know, and mm-hmm. they start to pile up there, and it's really great. Um, so she, she dispatches with all of them, and Aang is free. And once the dust settles, we are back in her house, and she is, for the first time, revealing her true self to her parents, and she apologizes for deceiving them and for leading this double life but she says I am more powerful than you give me credit for I am a really talented earthbender I love to fight and I'm really good at it and she she says I hope this doesn't change how you feel about me And we have this moment where her father says, of course it doesn't change how I feel about you. And you think that he's going to say, I love you no matter what, and I'm so sorry that I've been holding you back all this time. And, you know, you think you're going to have, like, the feel-good, like, wonderful resolution where the parent can see his child for who she really is and accepts her for all that she is. And that is not what we get. Her father's response to her admission about this double life that she's been leading and about how it makes her feel, how she finds bending empowering and how she isn't helpless, how she can be an independent person. His response to that is not to accept her for who she is, but is to say, clearly I've given you too much freedom and we're going to have you even more heavily under guard than you were before. How he could come to the conclusion that she's had too much freedom is beyond me. Because 
most of the people don't even know that she exists. She says, I've never had a friend. I've never, you know, the only people that she knows are her guards and her parents and her tutor. I mean, it's not a rational conclusion right. that he comes to. No, it's not at all. Clearly, he's like a control freak. Mm-hmm. It stems from a place of protectiveness and love, I'm sure, but like, you know. But it's so distorted at that point. Well, I don't know. You know? I don't know this for a fact, but my theory is that someone on the writing staff had a particularly rough coming out story because that's sort of what the beats of this story, you know. Tough, like yeah, it's also like if you're in like really like evangelical Christian mm-hmm. like areas, they're like yeah, that. they're just sort of like too much freedom. You get too much I- too many ideas, right? That and any, keep you from the path. Or anything whatever. that is trying to control or restrict your your scope or your contact with the world, any anything that's trying to keep you small, because that's essentially what he's trying to do. Her father is trying to keep her small and contained. He's not letting her meet people. He's not letting her have an independent life. You know, he is prohibiting her personal growth. And I can see in the first movement of the story where that might come from a place of love. You know, she's blind and he doesn't understand that her bending makes her more capable than he believes her to be. But even so, I mean, whether or not she was an earthbender and had that talent or not, she still deserves more of a life and more human connection and more independence than he's granting her. But I can see how in the beginning that comes from a place of fear. As a parent, you want to protect your child. You love your child. You want to keep them safe. Like, I can see where that comes from a good place. I think there's also some classism woven in there because they're supposed to be the richest people in wherever the hell they live oh completely and so i'm sure that yes that absolutely that comes into play but i think it it becomes really horrible when he's been exposed to this it's not even just Toph telling him it's not even like she goes to him and says hey i'm so much more than you thought that i was and i want more from my life than what you've allowed me to have until this point. He actually witnesses with his own eyes her capabilities. And so there's nothing to refute that. He has the evidence that she is more capable and more talented and more independent than he'd ever believed her to be. But in the face of that knowledge, he doubles down. And that... That makes total sense to me that he would, though. Uh, well, I mean, I'm not saying that it doesn't make sense, but I'm, I, but just, like, as a parent, like, I have a child, and obviously I hope never to confine my child in the way that he has confined his child. Because like, you're a no, good parent. I'm serious. Well, <laughs> I don't know if I'm not. I mean, I, I think that I am, but, like, but I'm sure that as a parent I'll make mistakes based on my beliefs about what's best for my child that may or may not actually be best for my child. You know, I. But you still think of your child as a person, but it's clear that he doesn't. Right. He doesn't think of Toph as a person. He thinks of Toph as this fragile doll or, you know, something that I guess belongs to him in a way that's not like she's my daughter, but like she's my thing. Yeah, in a really disconnected, discarded way because we never see him interact with her 
any way other than when he's having these conversations about her fragility. Like, we never see them have, like, a loving relationship outside of this. So I, I agree that he does view her more of, as more of a possession than as a complete person. And I, it's like, I, I, I understand it in terms of, like, the fiction and the story that we're telling in these characters and whatever. Like, yes, I understand it. But, like, as a human being who is a parent, who has a child, I, I don't, I don't understand that. Like, I, I cannot, I just can't. And I, and I, I mean, ugh. so he doubles down, you know, and says, essentially, I'm going to up your, your guards and I'm going to restrict your life even further. And we see Toph kind of seemingly resign herself to it. And, you know, Ang leaves and says, I'm so sorry. And she says, you know, I'm sorry too. And they go. And then as they're packing up and getting on Appa to fly away, she comes running out after them and her hair is back down in her face. So like, this is her, yeah, she's this is her, her true, her, yeah, her true her self. Blind bandit clothes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is like who she truly is. And so she says, Oh, my father changed his mind and he's, he's cool with me traveling the world. And you know, that's not true. Like when Sokka does too, because he's like, "Well, you better come with us before he changes his mind right. again." <laughs> yeah, and so they let her up, and it's really great because uh, she asks, she she takes Ang down. You know, she's like, "Now, now we're even," because he beat her in the ring, and so she, uh, you know, thumps him a little bit and takes the belt. They take off, mm-hmm. and she says to Sokka, "You know, can I have my belt back now? Now that I've you know got my championship back, or whatever." And he throws it down. <laughs> And it clunks her in the head because she is blind. Right. <laughs> and can't see it, which I thought was so great. I mean, not that a blind girl's getting bonked in the head with a thing, but it's like it, her her powers. No, but like her powers make sense within the world. Like the way that she. They have limitations. Right. Yeah. Like the, and logical limitations. Yeah, like the way that she sees is not the way that we see. And she says it, it's almost like seeing with my feet. You know, it's it's very connected to her bending, and it it is different from the way that typical sight works. Right. And She's I a little liked, closer to Daredevil than, yeah. you know. I liked that. I, I liked that it felt like a true organic um, thing, that it, it's, it, it makes sense, and I like what that does for her character and the ways that it empowers her and... Um, just everything about it I just really liked. So I thought that was really great. Um, I love this episode. I, I think that they do a really good job with Toph's blindness mm-hmm. in terms of like, oh, clearly she has a, a magic, quote, magical ability to compensate for her blindness. Yeah. But it doesn't wholly compensate for her blindness. And it comes up in multiple ways throughout the series. Little ways that that we are reminded that she is blind and like, cause you know, she can see with her feet. She, you know, is mobile and she's can do a lot of things and she can fight and do all, and she's not physically helpless in that way. But there are moments where things that they do, that they forget that she's blind and it comes up again. She's like, <laughs> I feel like a lot, can't see. a lot of those moments involve reading. Yeah. She's, mm-hmm. you think because then she can't see right. and she can't read. Cause it's a depth mm-hmm. perception. She'd be illiterate. Yeah. Yeah, she would be illiterate. Yeah. So, like, they do a really good job with that, I think. Yes, they've given her a magical ability to compensate for her disability, but 
that magical ability has limits mm-hmm. in realistic ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was well done. Um, so I wanted to go back right before we wrap up on this episode. I wanted to go back really quickly to something that I put a pin in earlier, which the is that swamp. Toph is the girl that Aang saw in the swamp. Yes. We we got to that much sooner than I was expecting. I think if there was only one episode between the swamp and when we meet Toph. Um, so when they're in the swamp and they're finding out about what they're at, you know, kind of that tree with that guy whose name I don't remember now. Who's tree like guy. The of the swamp. Hugh. Tree guy. Hugh. Tree guy. Yes. Hugh. Hugh. That's right. Him. He is telling them what their visions mean. And it's, he says, you know, it's someone that we've loved. It's someone that we've lost. And Aang's like, well, I don't know my person, you know? And, and then he says, well, time is, you know, time is an artificial construct. <laughs> you, you know, it's not always in the past, the future, you know, whatever. But we don't, I mean, my assumption is that Aang saw someone, he had a vision of someone in the swamp that he hadn't yet met. But my assumption is that it's still somebody that he loved and lost. So I don't think Toph is going to make it through the series. And I know that's super spoilery and you can't tell me that answer and I don't expect you to. But I'm just stating it for the purposes of the podcast. That's my assumption. And you can all go laugh at me if it turns out that I'm wrong. Uh, But I just had to put that out there. I think she's going to die, which makes me really sad because I really, 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 really like her. She's pretty good. I mean, I'm assuming that people are going to die because it is a kid's show. And I guess you can't answer that question without... How does does people are going to die and kids' show go hand Walk us through that a little bit, huh? That that was really disjointed. Where did that connection come from? All the kids' shows I watch with my daughter, people are dying left and right. I meant to say... I think that people are going to die even though it is a kid's show. We've seen Yue died, and her death was not as effective as it was probably meant to be because of the execution of that whole thing. We talked about that at the season one finale. But she was a character who we met who died in the course of the show, um... And it was supposed to be, we were, we were supposed to be sad that she died, which I guess we were sad, but it wasn't necessarily like heartbreaking. Um, so she's dead. And I, I just don't believe that she's the last one. The stakes of the show seem pretty legit. I mean, it, it seems like we've had a few deaths off screen that we that happened before our story started you know Ira lost his son and this is a show that does deal with loss Katara's and Sokka's mother is dead and was killed by the Fire Nation you know it's calm Zhao was killed by the ocean spirit yeah well but him I, he was killed by the ocean spirit and that is a real death but it, he's not someone we care about we're supposed to feel if not pleased about his death, we're supposed supposed to feel that his death was justified. So I think it's different than killing someone that we know and love. Um, and I know also in, in children's fiction, it's common to have parents die at the outset of things so that the kids can get on with their adventure. 
sort of. You have to dispose of the parents or send the kids off to boarding school or somehow otherwise separate the children from their parents. Um, so we know that, you know, Katara's father is off fighting the war and her mother is dead. And that kind of sets her and Sokka up to be free to traipse around the world on this adventure. Um, but it is a show that that seems to have real stakes and seems to our characters are familiar with loss. Aang has lost everyone he's ever known or loved. You know, it, it, it seems like the stakes are real. And I think it would be unusual for us to make it to the end of a series in which the people that we love are fighting a real war against a deadly enemy and have them all survive. And I don't think that Katara Osaka is going to die. So that's that. I know you guys can't say anything. <laughs> you can have your little spoiler section later and, you know, talk about it. But I had to put it out there because I had that thought where he was like, you know, the, the swamp shows us visions of people we've loved and lost. And so I just had to put that out there. He said loved or lost. Did he say love or lost? Okay, so. so maybe not, maybe not. Maybe you guys will go hear a little spoiler thing and be like, she is crazy. Um, but that's that's my assumption right now is that, that Toph is dead. Although, I don't know if Mallory would have been able to avoid letting that slip. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe not. <laughs> maybe, maybe Toph will live to see it through, which I hope that she does, because even in this brief introduction to her she is such a strong character and i like her so much and i'm so glad that she is going to be part of this adventure oh and the end of the episode is her dad bountying <clears throat> excuse me yeah. setting, setting a bounty for her um combining the efforts of the boulder and the master no, shinfu and master you oh yeah. that's what you're right you're right not the boulder shinfu and master mm -hmm. you yeah which is interesting I mean, one, it's terrible. He's such a terrible man. I hate him so much. Um, but, but it is also, it, it mirrors that whole season one thing where throughout season one, they were being pursued by Zuko the entire time. And so now they're going to be pursued by these bounty hunters. Like there's going to be someone on their trail for at least a little while. Um, which is good because Iroh and Zuko are not actively pursuing them at this point in time. And Azula, I'm sure they're on her to-do list, but she is not, you know, relentlessly pursuing them at this time. So there's no one following them. They're, they're just on their own journey, and they're dealing with their own issues that come up in the course of that journey, but they're not being hunted the way that they were in season one. So we're kind of going back to that a little bit, which I like. I mean, I don't like that they're being hunted, but <laughs> I like that sense of, like, urgency. It gives them a sense of urgency and yeah. Yeah, something to something to work against I guess mm -hmm. so was there anything else that we missed so far on this episode um, I just wanted to point uh, out that before they find the location of Earth Rumble 6 those kids that <laughs> uh, Katara eventually you know mugs and they ask them you know Where's what's the island that this thing is on? They're like the island of Nunya business. Nunya. All right, Nunya. Sokka's like, I have to remember that. That's and really Sokka, great. Sokka laughs. First off, he takes like two long beats before it sinks in, and he gets it. And then he laughs his ass off, and that's contagious because that's a terrible joke. But after hearing him laugh at it, I couldn't help but laugh at it. You know. 
stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> Island of None yet, None your business. Right. Such a such a terrible kid thing to say and do. It's so funny. Um, I have a couple of things um, from the commentary track that I heard. So Toph has a slightly different style of earthbending than most of the other earthbenders that we've seen. We I think we mentioned this before in a previous episode without actually mentioning Toph. We mentioned that someone else has a different style of earthbending. And so her style of Kung Fu is called Southern Praying Mantis. And one of the apocryphal stories about that style of Kung Fu is that it was actually one of the founders of that style was a blind woman. Really? But it was a happy, yeah, it was a happy accident. They didn't know that oh. before oh, coming up with the character that's awesome. Toph. Um, even more interestingly, Toph was originally supposed to be a boy. So really? glad she's a girl. Because Nickelodeon didn't think a girl would be appealing. <laughs> No. Mm-mm. No. And I, I can't imagine Toph as a boy. I don't think it would have the same pathos. It wouldn't have the same emotional affect. It wouldn't have any of that, I think. And what is so great about Toph is that she's such a bundle of contradictions. And to make her... Like, I just can't imagine her as a boy. I think it just wouldn't be nearly no. as good. Mm-mm. I'm so glad that they did not follow through with that because she's so much more effective this way, I think. I think that's really interesting. I noticed that her style of bending was different, though, of course, I couldn't know, you know, I didn't know which specific style it was based on. But we just got that great scene in the flashback of Kiyoshi um, doing her earth bending, and it's yeah. very, like, physical and, like, deep thigh bends and stomping and, like, you know, big movements. And Toff's is much more subtle. It's like more an contained. ankle, yeah, yeah, tight, ankle twists and finger. It's tighter here, yeah. Yeah. So I did notice that it was different. Uh, that is really cool, though, that it that style was created by a blind woman and that they didn't know that, that it just happened to yeah, be. Yeah, it was totally a happy accident. Um, they Because they have a martial arts consultant for the show, Sifu Kisu, and they said they wanted something slightly different for Toff. Um, because she's, you know, obviously she's blind and she would have a different thing. So he introduced him, Kisu, Sifu Kisu introduced him to like another master who specializes in this style. Um, and that's where they learned. And they're like, oh, well, that's kind of a happy accident. Like our character's a blind girl and it was created by a blind woman. So I thought that was super cool. That was really cool. Um, oh, did you notice we finally met the earthbender in the credits, (laughs) opening credits? No. We've now met everyone in the oh, opening. Oh, right, right. No. It's the boulder. That's really funny. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, that's kind of all my comments really on this one. Oh, we forgot to mention the... Oh, yeah. when Because she, she did it before when they're leaving after the, after the boys have told them where to find the blind bandit, even though they don't know that that's where she lives. And they're leaving, and Katara does the I'm watching you thing, and Sokka does the water drop. <laughs> Such a strong exit. And it, I like the way he also kind of like flips his head, like at the very yeah. end. Mm-hmm. He's like, "What a tribe!" And then he's like, <laughs> it's "So good, so well animated." I love so it. So good, and I love that he's like Katara's like backup. You know, like she's the formidable person. Yeah, she's the muscle. Like, yeah. Yeah. Right. He's the hype man. <laughs> so good. I don't know if your guys' version... I don't know where you guys are watching it, but on... I'm watching this on the DVD, and this is the first episode where it said previously on Avatar. We did see a lot of previously, yep. 
it, it had that on, um, I'm watching it on Amazon Prime, and it had that too. Is it, because is this the first time we've seen it previously on Avatar? Maybe in season one before, like, a, a big plot-heavy one, but this is the one, this is this stuck out to me, because I was like, I don't recall seeing it previously on Avatar mm. before. Yeah, I haven't paid enough attention to know whether it was a rare occurrence or not. I mean, none of the episodes we've had up until now have had the previously, so this was the first one where there was a previously. And also Zuko alone, the next episode, had a previously. Was it the voice of Roku saying it? Previously on Avatar, you know, that kind of a thing. No, I, I don't really know who it was. I mean, it's a narrator, okay. and it's like previously on Avatar, and then they show clips from various, like previous episodes right, right. that kind of give a various background of where we're getting to. Um, because for this one, they show the clips of Boomy saying, you need to find an earthbender who... Waits you know, and listens. Listen, yeah. Um, and they give a little bit about what happened to Damashu, why Aang is here, and then obviously then we get to Zuko alone, then we have a little bit about his backstory as we get yeah. into previously. So do we have anything else to say on the Blind Bandit before we move on? Well, who's the voice of Toph? Oh, right. So um, the voice actor who plays Toph, her name is Jessie Flower, and we've previously seen her on this show playing Meng in the episode The Fortune Teller. She was the girl who had the line, oh, I bet her hair is so manageable <laughs> when talking about Katara. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just... Yeah, the one with the crush on it. Yeah, it's just such a really great like con- contrast of characters. Like Going from that to Toph Beifong is a big, awesome jump. Um, yeah, there were actually a bunch of... So I don't normally write down people who are listed as additional voiceover stuff because they don't say what characters they played and there's way too many people in every episode. But I did write down two of them here. Um, oh, let me just check off a few of the ones we know. Saab uh, Shimono played Master Yu. He also does Monkey Yatso. Um, he was Mr. Sparkle on The Simpsons, if you guys remember that episode of The Simpsons. I am disrespectful to dirt. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I actually wrote that down. I didn't mean that. <laughs> Whatever. Um, <laughs> Zinfu is played by Mark Grau, um, who has been on Codename Kids Next Door as Captain Black John Licorice, and he's played Judge Death in an animated Judge Dredd movie. Um, let's see. What order do I want to go in here? Mick Foley. We'll start there. Mick Foley, the boulder, we already said. Um, in the WWF and WWE has been Mankind. He was, he's shown up as himself in a ton of things, including an episode of 30 Rock. I don't know if you guys saw it, but he also produced a documentary that is totally worth your time. It's weird, but it's really excellent. It's, um, it's called I Am Santa Claus, and it's, (laughs) it follows all these mall Santas around and, like... (laughs) shows their actual real life and it sounds really weird but it's super super engaging you're like and a wrestler did this why why is this in front of me but it's good you should watch it um (laughs) i also love how he voices the boulder i think it's the boulder takes issue with that statement (laughs) um let's see uh cam clark played uh lao that's um toff's dad this is a storied voice actor here. Um, he played Flatermouse in the Tick cartoon. He played Meat Hook in Monkey Island. He's been on Eek the Cat. He played pretty much every version of animated Simba 
the Lion King that wasn't the original version because that was Matthew Broderick. Broderick. Um, but every like all the Kingdom Hearts games, all the straight to video, you know, movies, all that stuff. Oh, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, he was young somebody. Right. Mm-hmm. Back when JTT was a thing. He oh, played, JTT. He played Wolfgang Mozart in an episode of Gem and the Holograms. He was <gasps> Oh man. Yeah. Hang on. He was Kaneda in Akira. And he was the original voice of both Rocksteady and Leonardo in the original Ninja Turtles cartoon from the from the eighties. Nice. 80s. Yeah. Um, and the last two names that I just threw on here because they were um, extra, whatever I said earlier, um, additional voice stuff. Gabrielle Carteris from Nine Hundred Two One Zero, who played the original Nine Hundred Two One Zero. She played Andrea. No, anyone? Whatever. Andrea. Andrea. Okay, sure. Um, and the other one, and I really wish they had written down who he played because he's an amazing voice actor, uh, is John DiMaggio, who is the voice of Bender on Futurama, Jake the Dog on, um, Adventure Time. He... He must be one of the wrestlers. Yeah, he definitely is one. He definitely is one of them, but I couldn't tell which one. Um, he also produced a documentary, I think I've mentioned on this before, called I Know... I Know That Voice. Yeah, I Know That Voice, um... Marcus Phoenix in the Gears of War stuff. He was in an episode of the Newsroom. He was King Shark in Assault on Arkham, which is a really excellent animated movie that if you're not going to go see Suicide Squad, you should watch that instead because it's pretty much the same. And that is everyone, I think. Every damn person on this whole show. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, uh, real quick, the only other appearance of John DiMaggio that we get, which is unfortunate, but he does nail it, is and it won't be until the next season is in the Ember Island players. Yeah, I've heard a lot about them too, but I don't know right. what they are. Oh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll there. get there. You have to have watched the whole show to yeah. properly appreciate well, Ember Island. Well, players. that was a that was a title we threw around for the podcast before right. we settled on Earth Kingdom Radio or Earth Kingdom Prairie Home Companion, either or. Um, so we threw that around, and then we decided against it. And then on Twitter, <laughs> Alan Beck uh, from the Odd Man Out podcast was tweeting me about Avatar because he loves it. And he was following along with my notes and things that I was posting on Twitter as I went through the season. And he was like, oh, I can't wait until... Tell, tell me what you think about the Amber Island players, because he thought that we were much farther ahead than we were. <laughs> so I was like, no, I haven't gotten to them yet. I don't know what they are. No <laughs> idea. But, uh, yeah. We'll see. So, is one of the would-be rules to our alleged drinking game that we drink whenever Kelly cries? Yeah, so you can just finish your drinks now. Right. I just want to give people a heads up <laughs> that there might wind up blacked out by the end of this final episode. Yeah. Refill your glass, if need be, because uh, now we're on Zuko alone. And basically, the only recap we really need to give about this, because we're basically going to examine every single beat moment by moment as we go through while I weep endlessly, is that Zuko has left Iroh, he is journeying on his own, and he is taken in by an Earth Kingdom family who offers him food and a night of shelter in exchange for some work that he does on their farm. Meanwhile, uh, his time there sends him into flashbacks and memories of his mother and his childhood growing up. And it's devastating. 
um, I texted the two of you about like two minutes into the episode. Nothing had even happened yet. And I was like, I'm already crying. <laughs> Um, so this is, it's worth noting, the first episode we've ever seen so far that does not have any Aang. Aang is not in this episode at all. I think it's the only episode in the entire series that... Yeah, the entire series where Mm -hmm. he doesn't show up. Yeah. Yeah. There is no other, you know, none of the other characters are there. This is strictly Zuko, and we vacillate between his story in the present with the Earth Kingdom family and his past and his childhood. And so it just flips between those two things. And that's the only story that we get. It's a hundred percent Zuko. It's a hundred percent heartbreaking. Um, so we start off and he is wandering through a desert. Would we call that a desert? Um, yeah, sure. It's a desert. And he's running. It's like the equivalent of the frontier, I think. Yeah. This is clearly a western. Yeah. Yes, a stranger this comes is a to western. town. Right, for yeah. sure. Yes. Um, and so he's, you know, through a desert or the frontier, he's run out of water, he's run out of food, he's, you know, his vision is starting to blur, he's clearly about to faint, not feeling well. He sees um, two Earth Kingdom people sitting down they've got a campfire and they're roasting meat and the smell of it attracts him and he is about to pull out his swords and you know likely rob them uh for food when he notices that the woman is pregnant and so he returns his sword to his sheath and moves on and leaves them alone and he i can't remember actually because i don't have my notes in front of me how he Oh, I do. Never mind. So he manages to make it to um, a town. He stops at a vendor and wants to buy a hot meal and some feed, but he doesn't have enough money. So he just gets the feed for his horse bird. Ostrich horse. Ostrich horse. They finally named it in this episode. It's no longer a horse bird thingy. (laughs) Uh, They say ostrich lizard, I think. Yeah. That's what they said. Because it's lizardy in addition to being like an ostrich. Yeah, it is. Maybe. It's very bizarre. I wrote down I ostrich horse, ostrich but lizard. you could be right. I think it's ostrich lizard. So there's a group of sinister looking men gathered near the vendor. And while Zuko is um, getting what he paid for, there are two boys who throw eggs at the men and then run away. The men confront Zuko. He says that it wasn't him. Perhaps a chicken was just flying by. Um, (laughs) And they take his feet away. And so he now has no money and he has no food for his ostrich lizard or for himself. And the kid, whose name is Lee, comes up to him and is basically like, oh, it's really cool that you didn't wrap me out for throwing the egg. Thanks. I owe you, you know, come home with me and I'll feed your ostrich bird horse contraption lizard thing. (laughs) That's what they called it. Zuko goes home with Lee and he lives on like a little, like a farm with these horrific pig hybrids. I was so happy. I was so happy to see all those different pigs. (laughs) I can't even tell you. Sheep. Mm -hmm. There was a, there was the most disturbing was pig rooster. Yeah, there was a pig rooster. There's a pig cow. There was a pig, Deer, with antlers. I think with antlers. It was yeah. very like pig, Yeah, like a pig moose thingy. 
the 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 pig rooster was I think the most upsetting to me because it's a rooster with a pig's face. All I kept thinking was how delicious everything on this farm must be. (laughs) You really are soft. I know, right? Yeah. (laughs) Bacon infused everything. Seriously, (laughs) for real though. Yeah, no, I was not. Baconated chicken. It was not great. It was not great. Um, so Lee brings Zuko home and they, his parents, whose names escape me, the woman, the mother's name is like Sila. Sila and the father's name is Gansu. Okay. They explain that the men in the town who harassed Zuko are not really soldiers. You know, the real soldiers are all off at war and these are just bullies terrorizing their own town in the absence of any kind of um, morality. Uh, They're just preying on the weak that are left behind. And we learn that Lee's older brother is fighting in the war and he's away. And they offer Zuko a hot meal and he refuses. And then, you know, they realize obviously that he's starving and needs something to eat. So they offer him food in exchange for work. You know, Sila is essentially like, we need some work done on our barn. Why don't you guys go do that? And then when you're done, we'll eat. I loved Zuko, that exchange. Zuko says, I, okay. I did too. I thought mm-hmm. like, cause he initially refuses and she doesn't miss a beat. She's just like, well, we need work done on the house or whatever. Like she clearly mm-hmm. knew that he needed help, but she wasn't gonna, like he wasn't just going and to. She read him exactly. immediately. Right. Like she's too, he's too proud to take charity from us. Exactly. So fine, we'll, just we'll just give him some work. In general, the family and all the scenes with them, they are so wonderful. You know, Lee is constantly pestering Zuko with questions. Where are you from? And how'd you get your burn? And what's your name? And who's this? And who's that? And his father is just like, don't ask people questions that they Leave the man alone. Right? A past belongs to every individual, and they don't need to share it with us. And it's not, you know, like, they're just so totally accepting of the fact that this young man, clearly, whatever trouble is looming over him, he's clearly in a difficult place and has a lot weighing on him. And they just decide that it's not important, and it's not their business, and that they can help him and that they don't need anything in exchange, you know, like they are just so lovely, which of course makes the end of the episode all the more heartbreaking. Um, Although you can't blame them, but that's getting way for our head. So he helps them with the barn, you know, and they give him um, food and he stays for a little bit. And then we flash back into Zuko's childhood. We get little baby Zuko again. Get your drinks, everyone. I know. Yeah, everyone get your drinks out. <laughs> so there's there's a lot here. So the first moment of flashback that we get is back when Zuko's still in the desert and his vision's kind of failing him and he sees a woman walking away from him. And we learn that that's his mother. And so as we go deeper into this flashback, we see baby Zuko. He's not actually a baby, for those of you who are not aware of my... Uh, previous nickname for Zuko and we've previously seen him in flashbacks. This is a young Zuko, probably 10 or 12, maybe. They even um, recast him. Like, it's no longer Dante ba- Basco, you know. I did, I yeah. did it's notice. A, it's a young boy. Yeah. yeah, I did notice that the voice was different. Um, I thought he did a good job. He did. It was great. Yeah. They, you know, so he's young and he's with his mother and the whole flashbacks are kind of their... Um, 
they're not sepia toned, but the color palette is definitely different. We we know that we're in flashback here. The way that it's animated and drawn and the color palette and everything lets us know that we're in a different time. And we see young Zuko sitting with his mother at a turtle duck pond. The turtle ducks are hilarious uh, and adorable. They're, I, I like them much better than the hybrid pigs. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I like them I'm all. Still, I'm still disturbed by the hybrid pigs. It's like, no. I was and so Zuko, happy about those pigs. Oh, no. No, no, no. And Zuko says, hey, mom, you want to see how Azula feeds the turtle ducks? And he, like, takes a rock and basically chucks it at them, which probably is how Azula feeds the turtle ducks, to be fair. Was it a rock? I thought it was, like, a big thing of bread. It was a big loaf of bread. He just Oh, was it? it? Okay. Yeah. 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 Either way, it's a dick move. Either way, yeah. 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 (laughs) Pretty Um, much. Which, I mean, I completely believe that that is how Azula does it, but, you know, Zuko himself doesn't really need to repeat the action, and he seems to think it's funny, like his mom's going to laugh with him about it, which she doesn't, and the mama turtle duck comes and bites him on the foot and is really you know like don't do that to my baby and Zuko's like why are you doing that ow 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 stupid turtle duck you know whatever his mom detaches it and puts it back in the water and it's like Zuko why would you do that and then she says and we're going to put a pin in this for later um uh, when you I, I don't have my notes so I don't know the exact quote but it's essentially like that's what a mother does if you you know, if you, if you mess with your the children, kids. Babies. Yeah, yeah, she's going to yeah. bite you. We're going to put a pin in that and come back to that in a little bit. <laughs> and so, you know, we see him kind of like think about that and process that a little bit. And he and his mom kind of have a nice moment. And then other things that we see in the flashback is Azula with her friends. Baby Azula. Baby Azula, who I think is still voiced by yeah, same the same actress, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we see Baby Azula, so and we our first introduction to her is she is about to do a cartwheel and she does an impressive set of you know gymnastics flips and cartwheels and turns and she doesn't stick the landing, she falls. And then Ty Lee is up next, and of course we all know present day Ty Lee is quite the gymnast and baby Ty Lee was also quite talented so she does her series of flips and she sticks the landing so Azula pushes her over <laughs> <laughs> which says pretty much everything you need to know about Azula in that one little moment <laughs> and while they are doing this May is uh, sitting beneath a tree and it, it's so funny to see these girls when they're younger, because again, we've only seen Ty Lee and May in one other episode. We've just met them, essentially. And we've only known Azula for a very little while. And yet, seeing them as children is so, it's already so full of nostalgia. We already know these characters so well, even though we've just met them, that we see them, you know, previously in these flashbacks, and it, it, we just connect to it. We understand, like, oh, this is them. And it, it's as affecting as it is to see Zuko, whom we've known for much longer. And so May is sitting under the tree, and Azula notices May. I think, I, I don't know the exact way that it all unfolds, but I'm pretty sure that... May May sees Zuko walking by, and she blushes. Yeah. And Azula yeah. notices that. So, you know, because at the end of the Return to Amashu, mm-hmm. you have Tylee kind of ribbing her, being like, hey, you get to see Zuko again. 
and she has that little smile on her face. Mm-hmm. And I know you you were like, I don't know what that means. But well, I, think I thought it was probably clear. a crush, but it could have also been something equally sinister. But yeah, so it's clearly a crush. and A crush, yeah. She has a crush on Zuko. We come to that now. And so Azula, because she is Azula, can't <laughs> let that go and has to embarrass both her friend and her brother. And so she hounds after Zuko to play with them, come play with us. And he's like, I don't want to do any stupid cartwheels. And Azula puts forward this very precocious child thing that you see a lot in fiction when there are kids who are also evil. (laughs) Where they're really good at, like, putting on this front for adults and, like, saying all the quote-unquote right things, you know, but they're evil. It's like if you've ever seen The Bad Seed, which is all about this evil child who goes around murdering people who have things that she wants... And she's beloved by adults because she's so polite and, like, you know, whatever. The bad seed is great. You should go watch it. But uh, Azula does the same sort of thing where she's like, I think it's important for us to play together. And, you know, don't you agree, Mom? And, like, she just, and her mother's like, yes, absolutely. You should play with your sister. That would be great. Whereas, you know, we all know that whatever is about to happen is not going to end happily. Um, so as Zuko goes and... Azula puts an apple on May's head and says, you know, oh, whoever knocks it off, you know, whatever game she constructs is like this William Tell apple on the head, knock it off sort of a thing. She shoots the fire at May. The apple catches on fire and Zuko runs to knock her into the fountain to douse the flames, which seemed a little bit like an overreaction. Like May wasn't on fire. Just the apple was. You could have just like knocked it off. But they both go into the fountain. I think that could have been... I mean, I assume that he was running at her to basically knock the apple off mm. her head and then was, in his enthusiasm, just yeah. knock them both into the water. I thought it was super cute. It was and adorable. Really, really creepy how well Azula knows both her brother and May. Mm-hmm. And how she's masterfully able to manipulate them both in order to humiliate them. Yeah. Because she knows that her brother has this core streak of goodness and has to stand up for the oppressed or whatever. And so she knows that if she can get her friend into that position, it just, it's like, it's so, uh-huh. so evil. It's <laughs> awful. So evil. It's awful. And of course, Zuko storms off and is like, girls are the worst. And May is really upset uh, by it. And their mother calls them in because they've had a letter from Uncle Iroh on the battlefront. And so he writes to them. And it's fun to see Iroh in, fun and upsetting, to see Iroh in the past as the general, you know, and as he's writing this letter, we see him in his, you know, battle gear with his guards. And it's a very different Iroh than we've seen before with his humor still intact he makes a really uncomfortable joke about like unless we burn it all to the ground you know and and everyone laughs and he laughs and then it cuts to the family and they're all laughing and it's kind of like ooh it reminds it reminds (laughs) you in case you forgot (laughs) what side of the war they're on yeah it reminds you for a minute of like who these people are and what they're doing um and so another thing that we should say is that uh, Iroh's, or not Iroh, I'm sorry, um, Lord Ozai, Zuko's father, is not yet 
Lord Ozai. He's not the leader of the Fire Nation yet. Zuko's grandfather is the person in power Azulan. in this flashback. Azulan, who, whom Azula is named for. So they read the letter, and we get that. There's so much stuff I'm trying to, without my notes, it's killing me. I'm trying to make sure that I don't miss anything. So where do we go from there in the flashbacks? Well, real quick, I just want to say that I, I had forgotten about the letter part of this episode. And mm-hmm. it was really cool to see not only, um, like, pre, um, like, the early version of Ira, whatever you want to call that, um, but also his tent where he was writing the table, or uh, writing the letter at the table, um, was set up, like, right outside the walls of Ba Sing Se, which all you see is, like, walls and a breach right down the middle. Yeah, right down the middle of And, like, they don't tell... I don't know if they've said this or not, but he's the only person who has ever broken the outside wall of Ba Sing Se. So, Mm -hmm. like... This was a much bigger moment than even the show made it seem. You know what I mean? Like, like it was right. And I was just like, oh, that's the end of the day. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so he gives them gifts. So right. Zuko gets the dagger mm-hmm. that has you know the superior craftsmanship and the inscription that says, "Don't oh, give up without a fight." There you go. Don't give up without a fight. Or never give up without a fight. Something like that. I think it's never give up. Never give up without a fight. And then Azula gets the doll. Gets a doll. The, like, you know, the (laughs) latest fashions. And so at first, when I was first watching this, the first time through, because I watch every episode multiple times. The first time I watched this, I was like, oh, well, Iroh just does not understand Azula at all. He just, he has this connection to Zuko and he doesn't have it to Azula. And then I watched it again and I was like, nope, this is Iroh being a troll. This is Iroh Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. very deliberately being a troll, which is what Iroh does. Consistently a troll. And I love that interpretation even more than my initial interpretation. It just made me so happy. I was like, nope, he straight up knows how annoyed she's going to be with this Mm -hmm. gift and doesn't care. Also um, worth mentioning is that the doll is dressed the way that Toph is dressed when she's all fancied up. Like, mm-hmm. the way that Aang saw mm-hmm. her in the swamp, mm-hmm. or the way that they found her when they went to the Beifong estate. Like, it's that same outfit. It might even be the same haircut. I'm not positive, but I think it is. Yeah, she like had, like, a up top knot. Yeah, it's basically yeah. A, a Toph doll that she burns. <laughs> Before Toph was ever born. Right. Um, yeah. Like, so there's the gifts, which are great. Um, and so then, oh, I don't know about the order of all this stuff. I think they're supposed to go see. They're supposed to go see the Fire Lord. I think as, as Zulan. Right, but this is but Iroh's son dies first. Oh, the they next get thing. I'm sorry. Go ahead. go ahead. Well, Azula or their mother, Zuko and Azula's mother, gets the letter that. Their cousin Iroh's son has died in the battle, and she's very upset. And um, Zuko is really upset, and he and Azula have a conversation. And Azula, so this is where things start to open up a little bit, and we start to speculate a lot more. Um, Azula. And Zuko have a conversation, and Azula is really dismissive, and essentially she's like, Iroh's an idiot, and he's lazy, and his son is dead, and he's going to be a terrible 
leader and our grandfather. Basically, she's like, he should get over it. Yeah, like, get over it. That's what she said. She's like, he should get over it. Yeah, and she's like, and our grandfather is, you know, well past his prime and is going to die soon anyway, and our father should be the leader. And Zuko is really like, well, he probably just, Iroh probably just doesn't know what to do. He's probably just sad that his son is dead. And Azula just has no, she has no empathy. She just, she doesn't care. It doesn't strike, like, she herself doesn't have any feelings of loss for the death of her cousin. And she doesn't have any sympathy or empathy for Iroh, who lost his son, you know. She's just ruthless. And she's very, um... You know, talk, she she is absolute in her belief that her father is the best of the three men and should be ruling, and the other two are either past their prime or stupid. So they have that whole conversation, and then the family goes to see Lord Azulon, mm-hmm. and we still never see we we have not previously, and we still don't now see Lord Ozai's face which I think is just masterful because it's so much scarier than if we did see his face. And it's not even that I think his face is disfigured or hideous or frightening in any way, but that the face is where humans convey emotion and he is devoid of emotion. He is empty and soulless and cruel and we never see his face because his face doesn't matter. And it's oh it's so chilling we always see him you know from the mouth down or from the like top knot up <laughs> you know we don't ever mm-hmm. see yeah like just kind of like this yeah. side of his face we like, never just ear. see his face and it's so effective it's so effective I, I think it's a really great choice and I'm glad that they carry that through so the four of them go and they sit before Lord Azulon and Ozai is buttering his father up and talking about how he is here and he is serving his people and his children are here and he's, you know, and he has Azula get up and demonstrate what she has learned. And this is where we see that she is a true prodigy. You know, she goes through her movements and firebends and her grandfather's impressed and her father is very proud. It's, you know, a great thing. And she says something snarky to Zuko, which sets him off. And so he gets up and he's like, I want to demonstrate what I've learned, which there's a reason why his father didn't ask him to do this. And yeah, the one little like flake of emotion that um, Ozai, Ozai, right? Yeah. The dad um, had like when Azula was up, his, his, the corner of his mouth upturned, just, up. to, oh, kind of just like just the tiniest yeah. bit. And then when Zuko got up, it went right it went back down. down. Yeah. yeah. And Zuko goes up and he does the same, you know, opening sequence that Azula does. And whereas when Azula does it, it's these powerful bursts of flames. Zuko gets like a little, like sputtering poof of like <laughs> a little flame and it's so, and he's like going through and doing, and it's so, it's so heart wrenching. It's so embarrassing and awful. And, and he like trips over his own feet. Yeah, he goes to do like the like, jumping oh. kick thing, you know, and he he falls, and he's crushed, and he's like, I failed. And his mother runs up to him, and she's like, No, Zuko, this is what I love about you—that you keep going even when it's hard. Um, 
and she's the only one to comfort him. His father is furious. Azula is gleeful. His grandfather is like, why are you all wasting my time with this nonsense? And then Azulan outright says, you know, make make me your heir is what I'm getting at. This is why. Oh, is that says it to Azulan? Yeah. Yeah. He's like, you just want me to, you know, ignore my firstborn son and in the in the throes of his tragic loss and pass him over and hand, you know, the crown to you. And so he dismisses the rest of the family and Ozai remains behind and Azula pulls Zuko behind a curtain and they start to watch and Zuko can't take it and leaves. And we don't get to see what's happening. We hear a big burst of flame, but we don't know what happens. Azula stays behind and she watches. And I really have no idea what happened between the two of them. Later on, we find out that Azulon is dead, and I 100% believe that Ozai killed him. I don't necessarily know if that happens in this moment or if it happens later. Let's go in okay, okay. chronological okay. order. <laughs> because after right, the ahead. scene, what I think is really important is that Zuko's in bed, and later Azula comes in to wake him up and says, Daddy's going to kill you. Yes. Because... In order to feel the pain of losing his firstborn son, of, like this, feel the same pain as his older brother who has lost his firstborn son, Azulon has ordered Ozai to kill his firstborn son. Mm-hmm. Which, <laughs> what a fucked up family. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a kind of a poetic justice to it, I think, obviously. Oh, like, of kind course. Of like, you know, all that sort of stuff. But I was just like, um, and I think that's the conversation that Azula overhears. So you think that she's not lying? Because, of course, after that conversation, Zuko lies down in his bed and said, Azula always lies, Azula always lies. And then we flash back to him in the present saying the same thing, which is heartbreaking. I can't even. So you think that what she overhears is that actual conversation, that she is not lying, that he has been ordered to kill his son. Probably. I, I that's that's not what I got from that. That's interesting. Well, I think in the way it's played out, it's ambiguous whether or not right. because you don't see that scene. You don't see Azulon say it. You don't. You just you have to rely on Azula, who we know has kind of a vendetta right. against her brother. Well, because here's the thing about it is that, and I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud. I obviously do not feel this way, but. Ozai killing Zuko is not, he doesn't care about Zuko. And Zuko doesn't bring anything to the table at this point in time. It's a meaningless, empty gesture. If, oh, if, if Ozai had to kill Azula, that would be equivalent to Ira losing his son because he quote unquote loves or at least gains from or is proud of his daughter in a way favors, that favors I feel like of his unfavors. He definitely favors yeah. Her. Yeah. And that but you're right would be a loss for also, him. But also that wouldn't give him any qualms about killing his son. 
because he doesn't care about Zuko. Oh, right. I mean, he would absolutely so he would do, do it. it. He would absolutely do it. I mean, I think if it came down to it, if Azula was the one on the chopping block, he would kill her, too. Like, I think I think at the end, he'd, he'd, he'd maybe feel, you know, a little bit more wistful about it. I don't even want to say regretful, but he'd have, like, a twinge of, like, oh, this is too bad. Like, you know, whereas with Zuko, I really don't even think there'd be that momentary pause. Um but I absolutely think he would do it, no matter what. It just, you know. But, but I had just, I guess I had just assumed that Azula was lying. And my assumption of the fact that she was lying colors the remaining events in the episode. So if I believe that she's telling the truth and that Zuko's life really is in danger from his own father, that changes everything that comes next. Well, what did you think... Like, assuming that she was lying, what is the rest of the story according to your yeah, theory? Yeah, let's just stay on the flashback, and we'll come back to the present-day story later. Yeah, yeah, We'll yeah. just stay on the flashback all the way to the end of the flashback, mm-hmm. I guess. So what did you think the story was? So Azula comes in, and she wakes Zuko up, and she's in bed, and she's like, Dad's going to kill you, whatever. And um, their mother comes in and pulls her out and is like, you know, it's time for a talk. And earlier in the episode, she made some remark about Azula, like, what is wrong with that child? Like, it's now just dawning on her that Azula's nuts and evil. Right. <laughs> Which I feel like he probably had hints before now, but okay. You probably didn't want to think about it yeah. too hard. I mean, it's your own child. You don't really want to think that your own child is a psychopath, but you know. Right. So, uh, you know, she pulls Azula out of the room. And then I think we get nothing between that and later on what we assume is the same night when Azu- when Zuko is woken up from bed again and it's his mother and she's like you have to know that everything that I've done I've done for you you know she you know says some reassuring stuff to him and then leaves in a hurry and I didn't know how to interpret that based on my original assumption that Azula is lying if Azula's lying, I don't know what it is that she's apologizing to Zuko for. It's true. It's obvious that she's afraid that something's happened, that she's afraid. My assumption was that Ozai killed his dad, and she is freaking out about how what a psychopath her husband is. And my assumption and what pissed me off, because I was really, really angry, was that she leaves. <laughs> that she's just like, bye. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you sent here. out a text about that. <laughs> I was really mad because I thought that she was in fear for her own life. And she felt as though if she stayed, she was going to make things worse for Zuko. And, and I mean, it was all very ambiguous and I didn't understand. But I feel like a lot of the stuff in the show is ambiguous and is not... You know, you just wait until later to figure out what the hell's going on. I should say that I didn't say at the beginning of this episode is that I was surprised to see Zuko's mother in flashbacks at all because I had always assumed, without ever having any textual evidence of this, this was purely my own assumption, was that she was dead and that she died early on in Zuko's childhood or, you know, like way before... I almost thought he wouldn't even have any memories of her. Like, I just assumed that she was dead and had been dead for a long time. And so when she's off running, I assumed that her husband was going to kill her and she takes off and eventually he's going to hunt her down and kill her. And that's the end of it. And that's why she's not in the show or we never mention her or whatever. If 
Azula is telling the truth, and that scene that we don't see is Azulon ordering Ozai to kill Zuko. Then my interpretation changes, and I think that his mom kills Azulon to relieve her husband of that choice so that he can ascend to the throne without having to kill his son, which probably makes more sense and is probably actually what happened. And then she just fled because she murdered the leader. It's still shitty that she leaves. Like, yeah, it's, it's shitty that she leaves for sure. And I, because I mean, it's, it's definitely something that affects Zuko, not just in this episode, but pretty much oh, but the always. entire rest of the show. Yeah. And I think that as well, I think that the sec, the latter one is probably, I don't know why it didn't. I think I was just too busy sobbing to like make any kind of like <laughs> irrational thing. And, and because I have no faith in Azula's. I just don't trust her. And so it just didn't occur to me that she could be telling the truth at all. Um, mm-hmm. And I had just assumed that he, that Ozai killed his own dad. You know, I just had all these assumptions and didn't question them. But if I take that second interpretation instead, that Azula is telling the truth, that Zuko's mother takes her out of the room, convinces her to tell, to confess what she is harassing Zuko about. She finds out that her husband is going to kill her son Instead, in order to save her son's life, she murders her father-in-law to clear the path for her husband to ascend to the throne, and she leaves to escape punishment for her crime. That well, the, the, the thing which she says to Zuko before she leaves is, "Remember everything I think I've, I've done, done. I've done, done for you." you. Mm-hmm. To me, along like before, I because they actually explain this later. Not well, they explain it in the comic books. Um, but my assumption was that she had made some sort of sacrifice for her son. Mm-hmm. That she had made, that whatever she had done entailed that she had to leave in order mm-hmm. for Zuko to live. Yeah. Basically. Well, that yeah. was the assumption. That she saved her son's life. And that, because that consequence of that was that she had to go away. Um, so it's still her abandoning her children. Oh, she yeah. does. She abandons her children. Like, 100% abandons her kids. But oh, yeah. the choices that she makes is not quite so cold-hearted as to be like, I'm just going to leave. Yeah. Oh, no, completely. I mean, it's, it's, there's sacrifice there and she's doing it for them. And, you know, all of that, I believe, no matter which, you know, interpretation we're going with. And now I'm pretty firmly on the ladder now that we're talking it out. But, um, but yeah, she leaves her kids and yeah, no, you can't do that. Like, I know you have to do that because otherwise (laughs) we wouldn't have Zuko in this show. So like, you have to do that. Like I get it from like the story perspective, but as a parent, like, I don't, I don't, I don't care. I think it's worse. I think you leave your child, both of them, because she should have taken them both. I know Azula is nuts, but Azula's not going to get any less nuts if you leave her in this environment. (laughs) So you, and her and her abandonment of Azula has consequences. Oh, I'm sure. It's true. So you you gotta take them both. You're the mother. That is what you have to do. And she doesn't she doesn't take either of them. She doesn't even take Zuko, who is clearly the one that she is more connected to, um, and that she feels more protective of. Because Azula at this moment isn't necessarily in any perceptible danger, although perceptible, imperceptible. Eh. Um, she doesn't take either one of her kids. She just leaves and I don't care if I, I like there is no rationale for that like no matter what you can say she was like oh well if I take them then they're gonna hunt us down until they get them all back and I put their lives in more danger if I take them like 
think about what you're leaving your children behind to. You know your husband is psychotic. You know he's evil. You know that your daughter is psychologically preying upon your son with no one to protect him. Like you, like you know what you're leaving behind. And no matter what sacrifices you've made to temporarily stay the hand of fate, to keep them momentarily, quote unquote, safe... <laughs> like there was no 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 it's so wrong it's so wrong and and horrific it's horrific i sobbed like i can't like, <laughs> like i can't i can't there because there's suko's mother's storyline I'm going to flat out say this, is never resolved in the show. Oh. I mean, they expand upon it. They do tell you more. They tell you more about it, but they never resolve it in the show. What do you mean by resolve? Res- like, we don't know what happens I don't know if we her? can tell you that. We know more than... What we I find know. out more. <laughs> yeah, we found out more than what you know um, on the show, but... There's a bunch of, even flashback stuff in the comic books, like, that takes place during that night that we just watched in this episode, that you're like, oh, that would have been useful information on the show? On the show. It would have been nice to know this. Yeah. You get, you get much more specific in the comic book about what went down, specifically. The conversation between Azulon and Ozai, and also what Ursa, the the mother does. But to be fair, I didn't, when I, when you finally see the, whatever the next episode is where they talk about this part of the story, once they fill you in on stuff, I wasn't like, man, they left out a big piece. Like, I didn't realize I was missing part oh, of the see, story. Oh, see, I did. Yeah. The whole time I watched the show, I was like, what the fuck is with Zuko's mom? Yeah. Like, because this is like, like Ellie said, I mean, she straight up abandons her children. And that's a huge thing. That's a huge, huge thing. Especially contrasted with her characterization as being someone who's protective of her children and who would do anything for them. So that kind of contrasts with, you know, she leaves Zuko and says, remember everything I've done, I've done for you. So you, you get that sense. Like, she sacrificed something. Yet, regardless of that, she straight up abandoned her kids. Yeah. And the whole show, all the way to the end... I was waiting for the other half of that story, for the other part where they tell us the the rationale behind her leaving, behind what she, you know, what she is doing. They never give it to us, and I was like, "Fuck!" <laughs> oh. So, just warning you, Kelly, it does not happen within the course of the show. I'm so mad. So, any speculation that you make about it, we can't necessarily answer because it's never answered in the show. I, it's, it's, it was a huge thing that really, really pissed me off. Um, and for like, and for a long time, people would be clamoring about Zuko's mom. Like, what happened to Zuko's mom to the point where they created an entire comic book series about it? How do you drop that? That's like a huge... They didn't drop it. They purposely did not address it. Why? Why could that be a know. purposeful choice, though? Like, what is the I rationale for not addressing it? I think they just had too much other stuff. It? I think they had too much to try and fit that in. Yeah, because, like, we're coming up... We're going to get to some individual stupid bullshit episodes, and I'm going to complain about how we're talking about whatever stupid bullshit episode and not 
this storyline. Like, we have the Great Divide, <laughs> but we're not going to get yeah, this. Yeah, no, right. Well, the problem is, if Urza has left, then what has she been doing the whole time? So it's a whole other story. So right now we're trying to focus the on the fact that journey. she's doing anything at all and isn't dead because the only reasonable thing is that she leaves and then her husband sends someone after she's her killed. and kills her. Yeah. There is there is no other story. There is no what she's been doing this whole time because you left your kids there. So the only thing that you should be doing in that time is trying to get your freaking kids back. Like there is no other story. I don't care where she goes or what she ta- who she talks to, and where, like there is no other story. The only story is that you get your kids. Everybody, take a drink. <laughs> yep, everyone, take a drink. It is something that really pissed me off, though. I will admit this. Like every time I've watched the show, it fucking pisses me off. I was like, you don't. And what pisses me off is not that they drop the ball; it's that they deliberately. I can kind of see why. Because to turn it into a search for Ursa would actually turn it into Zuko's story in a way that it isn't. It's supposed to be Aang's story, the story of Aang becoming the Avatar. So then you ha- if you have this entire side plot about Ursa, it doesn't fit. Especially the, the way the rest of the show plays out. But why is I there a it. side story? Why don't they kill her? I mean, I'm not, adverti- like, I'm not advocating for, like, character murder here, but, like, I don't understand. I'm serious. Like, from a, not from, if I can at all divorce my emotions from this plot line, which clearly I cannot do. Um, how do you even, <laughs> drink up, everybody. How do you even have, how do you even have another story? Like, what search for her? There is no search for her. She's dead. Like, that is the only thing that makes sense. Because his her husband, knowing the kind of man that he is, if he just wakes up one day and she's gone, is not just going to, like, let that be. Like, and he, we, even, we even get this scene with Zuko where he runs up to his father and is like, where is she? You know, when mom's gone, because he wakes up and his mother's gone and Azula taunts him and she's like, she's gone and grandpa's dead. And ah." and he runs out. Yeah. Those two sentences right next to each other (laughs) indicates that she killed him. Yeah. And she mom's gone and grandpa's dead. Mom's gone and she killed grandpa. And so he runs out to, to his dad and is like, where is she? And his dad just doesn't answer. And Zuko's face falls and he resigns himself to this life of, you know, the crushing weight of his father's disapproval. Um, there, there is like, I do not believe for one minute that Orzai is a man who would let his wife live under those Circumstances. I mean, yes, she killed she's his father to benefit dead. him, but like, but now she's out there as a person who knows that, you know, she's she is a liability. How do you not kill her from his perspective? And 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 she just leaves her kids. She just. Leaves I will them. say that and they do answer your question in the comic books. They do answer your question. I'll tell you this: she's not dead. They made this clear in the show. She's not dead. That's terrible. I didn't think they made it clear in the show. They made it clear in the show. Okay, I'm all so right, fucking well, mad all right, about all right. It. They made it clear Jesus in the show. Jesus Christ. She's not dead. I was like... That's awful. Um, That's so much worse. Because it's still terrible, but then she's dead. So you're like, well, she can't make it right. Because she's dead. <laughs> so... She's not dead. But she is... Something happened to her. 
something happened to her. Okay. I'm sure it's a, she's not. I'm sure it's a sad story, and I'm sure it's real tragic or whatever. But I don't care because you go get your kid. About the, I have mixed feelings about the comic, but in terms of the course of this television show, you know she's not dead. They tell you she's not dead, but they don't tell you what she's been doing in the entire time. Or exactly what the reason she left were. I was so mad. I was so mad about this. I was like... <sighs> it was like... Oh. And they do explain it in the comic book. But we can read the comic books later, and you and I could probably have this discussion about whether or not you think it was justified, because I'm not sure I believe it was. <laughs> no, I'm so mad. I can't think of anything. I can't... I can't... I mean, I don't care, I don't care if you're captive, you're kept prisoner, you're chained to a volcano somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Like, you... Go get your fucking kids. Ugh. Anyway. It's Kelly's a mom, in case you guys hadn't picked <laughs> up on that. I cried the whole time. And I'm crying now. Um, <clears throat> anyway. And so then, so the mirror to this story, this is Zuko's past and how his father ascends to the throne. And we have this really horrific um, scene where they're crowning him. You know, they cremate his, Zuko's grandfather, and they take the not hairpin, but deck comb, a decorative comb, I guess, that sits yeah, in his comb. hair. It's like a flame-shaped comb, yeah. <clears throat> and they, you know, they crown him with it, and Azula and Zuko are there, and they're kneeling, and they're in, you know, white finery, and Azula just looks like the cat who got the cream, you know? She's just thrilled by everything, and Zuko is just horrified at the runaway train that has become his life. Um... <clears throat> The and white so, is mourning colors, by the way. Yeah. It's not finery. Oh, really? That yeah. is. White is mourning colors in East Asia. That right. is. I remember in Firefly and the funeral for Wash, they're all in white, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was a joke on 30 Rock about it, because Tracy didn't know if Liz Lemon was wearing a wedding dress or, you know, a Korean funeral dress. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> With Liz Lemon, man. Um, right. It could have been anything. Yeah, and th- I mean, and I know that that's like a whole, like, the king is dead, long live the king. Like, that is a traditional, like, you can have no question of the line of succession, and so those things always dovetail. But that's really, I mean, the body of their grandfather is, like, behind them. <laughs> They're, like, at his funeral and celebrating the new, you know, it's really, it's really disturbing. Um, anyway. Oh, sorry, there's lightning happening. <laughs> I don't know if anybody... Can hear that on the microphone. Yeah, I heard that crack of thunder. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, no problem. I'm like losing my voice. This is going to be a long episode. Anyway, so that We're that closing in. That whole flashback is mirrored by the Zuko storyline in the present with this Earth Kingdom family. The bullies, you know, these Earth Kingdom men who are just kind of ravaging their town while um, all of the soldiers are off fighting the war ride up to personally tell uh, this family that their elder son has been kidnapped. Um, that that everyone, you know, that everybody's been captured. And it's like they ride up to, like, personally deliver this news in just the worst... Like, they're, they're not doing this in empathy or, like, anything. They're, like, they want to see the looks on these people's faces. 
when they tell yeah, them. Yeah, they even go as far to be like, you know what they do to Earth Kingdom prisoners, right? Yeah. They dress them up in they Fire Nation garb, put them on the front lines the front with front no weapons. With no weapons. Which is, I was like, this is horrible. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that they're being murdered by their own people. Like, it's just, ugh. And so, um, the show is dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The show is Dark. It's really dark. So Lee is my like whole voice is gone. I cried and I talked too much and now I can't talk anymore. So excuse me, but <clears throat> um, so Lee's father is like, I'm gonna go after the elder son. So he goes. So Lee goes up to Zuko and says, you know, when my dad leaves, will you stay? And Zuko says, No, I've got to keep moving. But Zuko gives him the knife. So it's the same knife, the same dagger from the flashbacks, which kind of improbable. Never give up without a fight. Yeah, kind of improbable. Like, Zuko and Iroh were alone. All their belongings were gone. Like, I don't know that he still has this dagger, but it's nice. Well, it's like... <laughs> it's the dagger that they cut their ponytails off with. Oh. When they threw them in the river. Yeah, it's the same yeah, dagger. Yeah, it had the seal script on it. Oh, I the, didn't the notice that. The seal script on the blade. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, that was... A, yeah. That's cool. Um... And I guess for a while they were back in the Fire Nation getting massages and stuff, so they could have picked up other things. Uh, <laughs> Before they decided to run from Azuma. Yeah. So, sure. Okay, I'll see that. Um, and he gives the dagger to Lee and leaves. And <clears throat> then Sila comes and finds him, and the bullies, these men, have taken Lee saying, you know, if he's, he, they cornered him and he pulled the dagger on them and, um, they said, you know, if he's old enough to fight, then he's old enough to be a soldier. But of course, you know, they're just bullies terrorizing a child and a woman and they're just awful, awful people. So she asks Zuko to help and he says, don't worry, I'm going to get your son back. And he goes and he fights them all and for the majority of the fight, he fights them purely based on skill. He doesn't use firebending until the very, very end. And it's not so much because he needs to use firebending in that moment as it is that he reclaims who he is. And that's, like, the symbol of himself. That's him take, claiming his name and his birthright and his identity. Um, and so he fights them all on skill alone. And, and we're reminded, you know, we... We know that Azula's a prodigy, and we've seen her do all this really great stuff in the present and in flashbacks, but Zuko has always been an incredible fighter. And when we see him in those flashbacks with such pitiful bending abilities, you realize how hard he has worked his whole life, and that his mastery of his bending and of his fighting is not innate talent. It is work that he has put in this time and he has trained and he has worked to become as good as he is. Um, it also looks less elegant than Azula. Even when yeah. he's firebending now, it's, it looks less polished or fluid or mm -hmm. it, it looks kind of scrappy. Like he's, like he's fought for it. Like he's like earned every, mm -hmm. every skill he's got. Like he's, he has that whole monologue to the unconscious Aang at the end of season one in that cave where he's like, I'm okay with this. I've had to fight for everything that I've had, and that's made me strong. That's made me who I yeah, am. Yeah, it's made me who I am. Yeah. So he dispatches with all of these guys one by one, and then he's finally up against the leader, and he gets knocked down. 
and I think it's that he has his, there's a flashback briefly to him with his mother, and she's telling him to always, what does she say? She's like, always, essentially, it's always be true to yourself is like the gist of right. what she says to him. And that, that memory renews him, and he comes up, and he firebends with the swords, and he dispatches of the final guy and announces, you know, I am Prince Zuko, I am heir to the Fire Lord, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da. And for a moment, you know, everyone is in awe of him, and then someone from the crowd calls out, you know, no, you're a liar, you're an exile, and I've heard of you. And the family that he's been staying with this whole time, you know, the mother puts herself in front of Lee and says, don't come any closer, you know, stay away from us. And Zuko tries to leave the dagger on the ground for Lee, and he says, I don't want that, I hate you. And it's so heartbreaking because their reactions are completely understandable. Like, the Fire Nation has terrorized them and murdered them and ruined their lives. And to learn that they have been harboring and aiding a member of the royal family who is in charge of this genocide against them must be, I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine the betrayal and the anger that you'd feel. But we're still so sad for Zuko in that moment. Like, even though I know that they are right to hate him, I still wish they didn't hate him. <laughs> the show is like, wah! <laughs> they know how to gut punch you in the feels, man. Yeah. They really do. This show really... Really knows how to gut punch you in the feels. Um, it the ending always killed me because the whole the whole show has been building up to Zuko as being not the bad guy, right? Mm -hmm. Like even though he's supposed to chase Aang and supposed to capture the Avatar, like he's got this core of goodness to him that by the time we get to Zuko alone, we know that he is fundamentally a good kid. But nobody else knows that. Mm -hmm. Only we know that. And that's what's so tragic, is that only we know that he's a good kid and no one else does. And I think that's why the ending of that episode kind of gets me. Because what it's done is such a masterful job of giving us Zuko as a character. Just everything about Zuko, what he wants, what he needs, who he is as a character, who he is as a person what his moral lines are that he will or will not cross. You know, like, mugging the pregnant couple. He won't do that. You know, he won't... He's perfectly fine robbing other able-bodied people. Like, he robbed a coach. He, you know, like, mugged other people for food and things like that. But he won't... There are certain things that he won't cross. Mm -hmm. I think just it all culminates in this episode so beautifully. And he doesn't say much. I mean, baby Zuko talks a lot. But, like, grown Zuko doesn't say much at all. Yeah. I did want to point out that, um, so the bullies, the head bully at least, his name is Gao, um, and his dialogue, I thought, or at least his little posse's dialogue, was like classic, like schoolyard bully fare. Like, when Zuko was buying the feed right before they rob him of it, they ask him a bunch of questions, all the answers he gives are no, and one of the guys is like, is no your favorite answer? Like, 
straight up, I've heard that on the playground <laughs> before when I was a kid. And then, like, at the, at the end of it, um, when Zuko stands up, you know, and says, you're all just a bunch of bullies and cowards and, like, screw you and everyone like you, um, Gao turns to one of his, you know, followers and is like, are you going to let him say that about yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic coward, bully, bullshit line. Like, I'm surprised somebody didn't get pushed in the lunch line in this episode. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I I just thought they nailed the like just those little bits of dialogue that are like, oh, we've all seen and or experienced this at some point in our lives. You know, like mm-hmm. we all at least know someone who's seen or experienced this. I just thought that was like so well done. Yeah, just I think what's so great about the show is that it shows you what evil is. You've mm-hmm. got Ozai, <clears throat> it's a form of evil. Then you have Azula, who's a different form of evil. And then you have the banalities of evil. You have all the bullies. You have, like, you know, it, it's so good at kind of showing you that, you know, because it could be so easy in a kid's show to just have evil with a capital E, right? You just have the big bad. And they're evil because they're evil. But the show doesn't do that. It shows you all sorts of everybody is on good and or is good and evil mixed and those lines shift and it's it's what you do. It's your behavior that makes you good or bad as well mm-hmm. as your intentions. So it's it's so masterfully done. And the other reason I love this episode is it highlights how good the acting is. Yeah. Not just the voice acting, but the animation. How much is said with no dialogue whatsoever. It's just silent action, uh, body language. So much is conveyed in just the animation alone, which I think is really, really, really great. So this, if you can't tell, is one of my favorite episodes of the season. So. Yeah, it was. It was great. It was upsetting, <laughs> but it was really great. Ah. <clears throat> uh. We should wrap up before my voice totally gives out. Um, do we have okay. any voice acting? Who is? Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> who's who? Okay, so a lot of these people don't have tons of <clears throat> credits, but uh, starting with the farm family, the farmers uh, named Gansu uh, was played by Brian O'Neill, who has been on All My Children, Law & Order... Um, oh, he was when he was on Law and Order. He was in four different episodes playing four different people. <laughs> I was like, those are all different names listed there. Um, the kid Lee was played by Robbie D. Bruce, who didn't have a lot of credits that I recognized. The mom Sela was Susan Eisenberg, who's mostly plays Wonder Woman in a shitload of animated things. Um, Ursa is played by Jen Cohn. Uh, whose biggest credit that I saw was Lord Zash from Star Wars The Old Republic video games. Um, We, of course, got Mark Hamill back in the mix for a few lines as Ozai. Um, Oh, uh, Gao is played by Gary Anthony Sturgis, who I couldn't place his voice. Excuse me. Um, But when I looked it up, I was like, oh, right, it's that guy. If you guys ever watched the cartoon uh, Static Shock from the late 90s, I want to say, early 2000s. Anyways, he was one of the main villains, uh, played... The character's name was Ebon, which I guess I didn't ever put together, was like... Because Static Shock, at least when it first came out, was supposed to be, like, the one of the 
kind of black empowerment comic books. He was a black superhero. Mm, he had black villains. Okay, he okay, had, yeah. You know, he lived in okay. the inner city. He yep. was basically a kid in D- Detroit or whatever. But his villain was named Ebon and was basically a shadow, like a person who... Anyways, the last person on the list um, is the voice of Azulon. Um, his name is Walker Edmonton. He's been around since... I mean, he's been doing this damn thing forever. He was on H.R. Puff and stuff and Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. He goes back to... 16 episodes of Land of the Lost. He was on Jim and the Holograms. He was on the original Transformers. And the role that we might know him best in was in the original uh, Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka movie and in the role of Mr. Slugworth. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And that is everybody. Yeah, that is everybody. That's all we got. Yeah. All right. That wraps up this week's installment of the Earth Kingdom Prairie Home Companion. Next time, we'll be covering two episodes, The Chase and Bitter Work. So be sure to tune in for newbie recaps, know-it-all nerdery, and general squeeing all around. Possibly and, some crying. Oh, yeah. Yeah, lots def- of crying. probably. I mean, let's face it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as always, you can subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play Store, or your podcast provider of choice. Or visit us at our website, earthkingdomradio.com. And if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram. You can follow me, Mike, at Robo underscore Pants on Twitter. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Cattails by Kevin McLeod, and our logo was designed and created by our very own JJ. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.